Welcome to Savvy Sab's podcast on call-in. This is episode 65, Chris Hedges interview recap. Let's recap the interview with Chris Hedges. How do you feel about his suggestion for political progress and the future of local actions is the way forward on the local level. And again, guys, uh, feel free to discuss any of the other uh, news stories we talked about tonight as well. Let's go ahead and bring in Karthik. All right, Karthik, you are on the mic. Long time no see. Uh, what's up, Savvy? Always good to talk to you. Uh, did, you have a, did you have a good interview with Chris Hedges? I didn't get to see it, unfortunately, today. Yes, yes. Uh, we talked about the results of the midterm election, and we talked about moving forward uh, electorally on the local level, um, putting more of our focus and energy there instead of the national level and a bunch of other things. We talked about the Ukraine war as well and the money, billions of dollars going to Ukraine again. We talked about that. And uh, I mean, he had really good things to say. You know, I mean, it's Chris Hedges, so. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I think, you know, his big focus was we need to be focusing on organizing on the grassroots level. And we have to break up like this two-party system. Like he said, we should have been already organizing for like some type of a third party movement like years ago. So that's what he said. Like the way forward is on the grassroots level. So it's similar to like the things that we say at RBN, like we need to be organizing with people in our communities and helping people ourselves, us helping each other and not like relying on politicians to be some type of a hero or savior for you. Cause we just see what happens. They just get co-opted. What's your thought on that? Uh, well, yeah, I feel like a lot of us were kind of like misled, like by many of our like former maybe political teachers, like our like where we got our news from, because like most of the news in the country when it comes about elections, it's all like, oh, it's just federal, federal, federal. That's all that matters, and the pre you know presidency matters the most, and like you know local doesn't really matter, neither does state. Um, but yeah, I feel like I've been uh, been awakening in recent years, like the last since like last year, about how important uh, local elections are. Just kind of like, I guess, act uh, locally, think globally. Yeah, I think that's a good a good message there to get across to people. Um, I've, so, I've spoken to a number of people in reference to local politics, and I think this was kind of the wake-up call for me. The number of people that would tell me that they didn't know who their city councilor was, that was a wake-up call for me. And that made me realize that most people are not focusing on electoral politics in the way that a lot of us do. Most of them don't watch independent media. Most of them are not paying attention to how politicians are voting when it comes to legislation. And so I always try to keep that in mind. Most people are not going this deep into politics. Like most of them, if they do vote, they show up to vote for the presidential election and that's it. Most people don't even show up to vote for the presidential primary elections. I think we saw that with uh, 2020 with Bernie Sanders, right? All of those people that came out to Bernie Sanders rallies, thousands and thousands of people. But when it came time to show up in the primary, unfortunately, some of those people stayed home. And I think it's it's a big it was a big reality check for me. And when I saw some of the things that we were getting done on the local level, and I know not every state is my state, 
But the things that we have accomplished locally here in Massachusetts, it's not just happening in my state. It's happening in red states. It's happening in places like South Dakota, Nebraska. I went through all the ballot initiatives for Arizona Tuesday night and tonight. All the things that passed. And it's just mainstream media is not talking about that. They they don't care about what's happening on the local level. They want to keep your focus on the national level. Yeah, yeah. Where I live, like in Southern California, like ballot uh, props uh, initiatives have helped a lot, like similar to where you are. Um, so I had a question because I, I to you about not local, but state politics. Um, so I, I know like we're all done like voting Democrat at the federal level, which is you know the right thing to do. But do you think on the state level, sometimes it matters to like it helps in a good way to vote Democrat? Um, it, like for, for governor specifically, not not federal, obviously. I think it depends. I mean, like, I'll be honest with you. We've had a Democrat governor in Massachusetts when I first moved here. Uh, Deval Patrick was the governor. And uh, I had some things to say about him. Like, he did not handle the public transportation system uh, well at all. In fact, it was poorly managed by his administration. That's why we're in the amount of debt we are now with the MBTA. Then we had a Republican governor come in and replace him. That's Governor Baker who is uh, not seeking reelection this time around, but governor Baker is now the most popular governor in the country, believe it or not, because he's been able to work with people across the aisle. Some people like the way he handled the pandemic. Some people like the way he handled uh, the transportation issue that we have. We still have issues with that, but he is the most popular governor in the country. And I think it all depends because like, for example, Governor Baker is a Republican, but he's a moderate Republican. Like he'll say this himself. He say like he's a Republican, but he still agrees that a woman has the right to choose. He's not against abortion. So when it comes to some of the social issues, he doesn't really align with the Republican Party that we're familiar with. That's why someone like him can win in a state like Massachusetts. So I think that it depends on the state that you're in. It depends. Like I've heard some things about the California legislature in reference to the Democratic Party, because wasn't it the the California legislature? Weren't they the ones that they had the votes to pass single payer health care? And then big money came in and they decided not to do it. Yeah. Gavin Newsom, you know, gets a lot of money from the insurance companies and stuff um the reason why i was asking is like because i'd say like sometimes it doesn't matter but i think sometimes it does and i'm very conflicted about this because um it, it was a de- it was a, a a a democratic governor here in california that that signed the bill that to raise it to 50 dollar minimum wage and also around the time obamacare passed um i think like i like all all the blue governors in the country um as a part of obamacare were able to expand medicaid so that more people could get Medicaid, you know, more people get healthcare, but most of the red governors in the country did not. Um, so that's why I think on the state level, sometimes it could help to vote blue. Hmm. Yeah, I think it depends. Um, I mean, our mayor, uh, Mayor Wu, she was the progressive in the race. She won. And like I said, she said a lot of progressive things when she was running. But then after she won, we realized like she's just like all the other corporate Democrats. Like 
She's been a big disappointment. She tried to outlaw protesting outside of politicians' homes. That didn't go over well here, though. Oh, that's the Boston? <laughs> yep. Oh, oh, yeah, I've heard horrible things about her. Yeah, she's she's been terrible. She said she was going to fix the housing issue, and so she's been trying to get more affordable housing. She actually just signed off on a budget for that, but the affordable housing is privatized. So it, it doesn't actually serve the people that it, it should be serving. And there's all these stipulations in reference to the income amount that's required. So it's just like, it's not what she said it was going to be. And we still have people being evicted and we still have homeless encampments and the shelters are full. So again, like I said, it, it, it all depends. You can end up with someone that does the right thing and you can end up with someone that does not do the right thing. I can tell you, I know that I've interviewed a couple of third-party politicians that have won on the local level. Peter Schwartzman is amazing. That's another one, by the way, if you guys are not familiar with him. He's uh, a mayor in Illinois. I forget the name of the town, but he's a mayor in Illinois, and he was a Green Party candidate, and he won. There's been a couple of them, actually, that won in California this year on the local level. But these people are never talked about. I feel like I'm the only one that brings them on. So it's just, I think more people need to see that these third party candidates do have the ability to win on the local level. And then maybe people will have more hope for voting for a third party candidate. Does that make sense? Yeah. I hear yeah. you. Okay. Uh, good talk. Thanks for talking to me. Oh, oh last so question. Um, have you ever seen Blade Runner? I have why. <laughs> uh, I'm talking about the. I'm talking about the, the second one, the sequel, 2049. I haven't seen the second one. No. Uh, so I just saw it. I saw both of them, but I, recently a week ago. But I saw the second one, and it and it blows your mind. It, it's it's very political. So uh, you should check it out sometime. It'll blow your mind in, in a very like left wing political way. I mean, anyway, I'll good talk. Check it out. Thank you so much, Karthik. You guys are always giving me great suggestions for for movies and shows to watch. All right, let me go ahead and bring in Marco. What's up, Marco? Um, We qualified for the ballot tonight and we're gonna be on the 2023 ballot, 33,000 signatures and we're qualified. Oh, wait a minute, Marco. I think we missed the first part. Yeah, so the, the, the ballot measure I've been working on uh, here in Portland, Oregon, uh, we just got word from the Secretary of State tonight that we qualified, so we made it to the ballot. All right, there's some good news. You guys hear that? All right, Marco, you'll have to remind me what the initiative was. I've been speaking to a lot of people. Yeah, no, it's cool. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, this, this initiative is uh, eviction representation for all. So everybody who goes to eviction court in my county will have a lawyer. Oh, my God. That is amazing because um, I'm not sure if everyone in the chat knows someone that has gone through the eviction process or has gone through it yourself. But I, I have. And it can become a, an expensive process. Because there's fees that you have to pay along with that. First of all, you already owe money, right? You owe money to the landlord. Then on top of that, there's these fees that you have to pay. You need to have a lawyer, a good lawyer, 
But a lot of times if you're getting evicted, you can't afford a lawyer. And, you know, a lot of people think that everybody who goes to court gets a lawyer, but that's only in criminal cases. If you're going that's to eviction right. court, which is a civil case, you do not, you are not guaranteed counsel. So we are, we have now guaranteed counsel for every tenant in my county. That is amazing, Marco. Uh, we were talking about worker co-ops tonight. I, I talked about that with uh, Chris Hedges as well. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I asked him, I was like, I said, look, like, I'm all for unions and unionization, but I feel like that shouldn't be the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal, we need to be building more worker co-ops. And he agreed. And we both wow. pointed to the, the rail workers. Like, look at what we just saw happen with the rail workers. They, they're a part of a union and the union leaders didn't even fulfill their uh, demands. And, you know, now they, they are trying to do a different fight. I meant to tell you guys that. I'll explain that later. But they are raising money on GoFundMe to try to do a different uh, strategy here to fight back. But I mean, a union leader isn't, they're not always in the best interests of the union members from what I've seen. So there's well, that yeah. too. Yeah. I mean, Savvy, I was on your show with Jessica Nemhart and like, you know, one of my heroes and it's like, it, we do need unions. We do need co-ops and we need both. We need union co-ops. We need to seize the means of production in the workplace and we need to seize the unions. We need to seize the means of producing union action. And in order to seize the means of producing union action, we need to seize the unions with co-ops. That's right. Because That's when, right. when unions were first started, the Knights of Labor, their plan was to seize the means of production with union worker cooperatives. And history happened and now unions are kind of separate from that, but we need to combine them back together. And there is a strong union co-op movement. That's right. And I think part of the problem that people are running into, Marco, is just finding the money to even get it started. Uh, that's one of the things that yeah. came up earlier today. Uh, me and JB were trying to make the case for the fact that Twitter should either be a public utility or a worker co-op or because they use our data. And without us, there is no Twitter. There is no Facebook. There is no Google. Like they need us in order to have that business. And one of the things that came up even during that stream was people said, well, we don't have the money to like start a worker co-op. So I think that's what's holding some people back. Well, exactly. And, and that's what's held me back from, from co-op organizing too. And the way you get around it is through solidarity economics. So like, I don't have the money to start a worker co-op, but the union might. So if we take over the union, the union can spend its money to start other union co-ops. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's like a plant of like the, the way a, a tomato plant looks when it's in full bloom versus when it just sprouts is very different. So we need to think about how we're going to sprout the solidarity economy. And once we sprout it, then we can start to bear fruit like everything we're talking about. It's just like, we got to, we got to go down to the grassroots. We got to go down to the roots and we got to start building up from the roots. We can't build up from the top. We have to build up from the bottom. That's right. Because I think a big part that I noticed as well is that this whole top down strategy, you, you just can't have, you can't have someone be a part of this. That's just out for their self. 
Like they, it really has to be a collective. And you have to have people on board that are serious about like working together as a collective. I think one of the greatest examples of this is, and I know I've told you this before, but Cooperation Jackson. Yeah. That's one of the best examples that I know of in reference to worker co-op. And they're also organizing in the community uh, as well. But I think that everyone should look towards like socialist alternative, the model that they have where there there is no leader. Everybody works together. And then that's how you avoid like this top down strategy, which puts people at the bottom and the people at the bottom at the bottom feel exploited or get exploited. That's how you prevent that. Um, I know some people will look at that and say, how do you have a leaderless organization? Well, Marxists have done that for years. Yeah, so, so the, thing about, the thing about that that's important to understand is it's not about leaders, it's about power. So if a leader, if a leader's power is dependent on the mass of people, then that's a check and balance. That's so right. Like we, we have to like, so like something like people would often say, oh, Black Lives Matter, it's leaderless. It's no, it's not leaderless, it's leaderful. Everyone's a leader. And it's important that we decentralize leadership because we have to decentralize power. Because power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So if your power is dependent on others, you can't really use it to corrupt for yourself. You can only use it to ben. You can't use it to benefit yourself. You can only use it to benefit the people who put you there. So it's so. Uh, there's a really good book by David Graeber. Uh, he's dead now, but his last book was called "The Dawn of Everything: A New History of Humanity," and he talks about how many indigenous people organize themselves as. Um, sorry, there's a lot of words here to think about. Um, oh, no worries. You can have, the, the key is obedience. So like, like Malcolm X, he's my leader. I follow him. I follow Malcolm, not because I'm obedient to Malcolm, but because he convinces me to follow him. If I don't want to listen to Malcolm X, I can just walk away. So like a leader without obedience is what we need. And a leader without obedience is an organizer. Mm. An organizer convinces you to follow them because of the power of their ideas, not because of the obedience you have to give them. What happens if the leader walks away? Because see, this is the problem that we ran into with the burnt with the Bernie Sanders movement, right? Bernie Sanders walked away, and then the movement just kind of fell asleep. A leader can walk away as long as the power is in the grassroots to pick a new one. So, for instance, Kashama uh, Shama Sawan, she did not want to be elected to city council. They held an election without anybody running, and socialist alternative in mass elected her she didn't even run that's right he was chosen by the grassroots that's a leader 
without obedience. If anything, the leader is obedient to the masses. Because when the leader does something the masses don't like, the masses don't give them their vote. What is another word for vote? Consent. If you do not, like, like communist socialist politics is about consent-driven politics. If you have a, a politics without consent, you have politics of authoritarianism, and that's what we have now. Hmm. So, like, maybe Kashama is going to walk away someday. That's fine. The people of a, of socialist alternative will elect somebody just as good as Shama when she walks away. Bernie is not that kind of person. Bernie is a shill to the Democrat Party, and he tricked us to support him. That's different. Bernie tricked us to support him. Shama rose out of the support of the people. That's a good point, Marco. So we never had that power, basically. Like through that Bernie movement, we never had, as a, as a group, we never had that power. Exactly, after he- that, exactly. That power is an illusion. And all of us were drunk on that illusion. But we, it was still an illusion. If you live in Seattle city center, you have power over Shama Sawant because you can vote for her or not. I live in a different city. I have no power over her. Mm. But if I, if I move to her city and join her organization, I have power now. You see? So like Shama Sawant is the result of people's power. Bernie is somebody who can, who hoodwinked the people into giving them some moniker of power, but where did it go? It went nowhere. It was no real power. That's a really good point. Um, I think I, I would like to bring on, uh, she was a part of our General Strike Summit. Her name was uh, Kiki. She did a segment on um, our General Strike Summit, and it was about dual power. And I think I need to bring Kiki back on. Well, because I'd love I, to be there. I, I was actually supposed to be on that panel, but then, um, uh, but then it got mixed up. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Both of you, because I think this needs to be. You know, back then, guys, like we had, I think we had maybe just hit five thousand subscribers. So we have more now, and I, I really think that message needs to be heard again uh, by Kiki because she breaks down what it means to have dual power. And so that you don't have like this hierarchical uh, structure that puts people, you know, at the bottom. Yeah, because that's the thing, right? Is that like, if you don't, if you don't explore the contradictions of your models, you're doomed to repeat it. Those who don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. So like, we're not going to, it's like the French. They revolted against the monarchy and then they created a system that's just as bad. You know, the French Revolution was about a capitalist revolution against monarchy. They replaced monarchy with capitalism. Two steps, it's like one step forward, 10 steps back, right? Like, I mean, it's just like we have to understand the contradictions of our current system well enough to be able to 
move into the future and create a system without those contradictions. That is so important, Marco. That is so incredibly important. And there's so many, I'm going to do my homework on this because it's going to take a while for me to research it. But there are so many worker co-ops, you guys. The problem is we just haven't heard of them. And I only know about it because I'll, I'll Google it, right? There's so many worker co-ops, whether it's national or like in your state. And I really want to come up with a good solid list of those worker co-ops and see if we can add that to the RBN website so that you guys have these resources. Because you might think you don't have worker co-ops in your city, but you may have them. You just haven't heard of them. Do, do you know about the BSA? They have a dual tower, a, a, dual, a dual power app. I did not know that. Yeah, so the, the Black Socialists of America have a, I think they call it dual power map. And they have like a, a website and a, a map of like all the worker co-op and dual power organizations in the country. I will have to check that out. Thank you, Marco, that you made that uh, research easier for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I can send you an email and send you some info too. Sounds good. I think we got Roger here too. Roger, uh, whenever you're yeah, ready Roger. to speak, just unmute. Hey. Hello. How you doing? Okay. Yeah, I just got on here, so I, I, I don't uh, know what was uh, said or whatever the case is. But um, I just I just wanted to mention about the uh, the way Uber is um, operates in in New York City is different than it operates in the rest of the state and in the rest of the country. So New York City probably has well, they have what's called um, the TLC. I don't know if you have that in Boston but it's taxi limousine commission and they're a city regulatory body that regulates the industry um, you know taxis town cars limousines so on and so forth okay so for higher vehicles all of that so what happens is um you have to get special insurance um they, they call it tlc insurance um you have to get special insurance to um for your car and and the, and the city working with the state gives you special plates and you get a city license just like how you get a have a state dmv license you get a you get a city license okay so so what happened was um well hold on roger to, let me explain to people because um if anyone just joined they might be confused like what is happening um, oh, one yeah. of the things, yeah, one of the things we talked about tonight, you guys, was that uh, the Uber drivers in New York City and in Boston are on strike. Okay, sorry. Go ahead, Roger. Okay, yeah, no problem. So what happened was when Uber first came to uh, New York City back in 2012, they were not required to, um, like the drivers, they weren't really required to have you know, uh, you know, this, cause they was like a new thing. So they just pretty much didn't fall under the regulations. But when Uber first came here, I can't say for other states, but I know when they first came here, they were a, um, a black car service. Okay. And they serve strictly the wall streeters. Okay. 
So um, what what would happen is they would get, I guess they would get somebody who was uh, who worked for Uber to take one of the town to take one of the town cars or whatever the case is, and then say and then push the app on them and say, yo, you should check this out. We're a new company called Uber. We're starting this, blah blah blah, so on and so forth, and. They were serving strictly the Wall Streeters, right? So I would probably break it down to three eras of Uber here in New York. The first, the first set was the one who made the most when they were just serving the Wall Streeters, right? So I heard I came in on the second wave in 2015 or 2016. Um, but it was rumored that these guys was making forty five hundred to ten thousand dollars a week back then. Do you think so, um, Roger? That's what the rumor was. I'm talking about when they was just serving the Wall Streeters. Oh, okay. okay? Because okay. I was talking to people who left. When I came in on the second wave, you see what I'm saying? Which, because I, you know, not, we kind of bought the prices down because what happened was when I came in, they, were, they said, hey, this is working so great. Let's make it available for everybody. So a lot of drivers left because that's when they broke it down to Uber Black, Uber uh, SUV, right. Uber Axe. You know, they, they came out with all these categories where before it was no categories. It was just Black car service. Okay. And I had talked to some drivers when I first started who told me that, that who told who who used to work because I had them as customers and they was like, yeah, hey, I bought a house and everything. You know, I got out of debt. I did all this stuff. But pretty much when, when we came, people, you can put it like this. The the boss at these board meetings probably told them, hey, uh, you guys don't have to because, you know, these things were being paid by the company, you know, you know, whatever Wall Street company they was working for. And I guess those bosses told them, told their people, yeah, you don't have to take the town, the, uh, the, the black car service. You could take this thing called Uber X is cheaper. So because of that, because the, because of the prices are tiered, okay, the, it, 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 people started taking the Uber X more than they were taking the, uh, the black car service. So it's kind of like it, it brought it down. So when I came in, what I said before, like 4,500 a week was the, um, was the uh, minimum. Now it became the maximum because I saw, I saw it. I knew other drivers that actually showed me they was making like 3000 4000 a week. I'm like, how the hell do you make? I was like, what type of driving do you do? I was like, I tried. I, 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 like 1500 <laughs> You know what I mean? But I had drivers, you know, that showed me, yeah, this is what I made last week. I'm like, holy crap. Um, so then what happened was a lot of the yellow drive, the yellow drive, the yellow cab drive, the, the, the um, yellow drivers in taxi cab drivers in New York City, you know, they got pissed and so on and so forth. So they went to the TLC because, you know, like I said, the, the TLC, they regulate the, the industry. So they said, yo, you got to do something about this because they're just coming in here doing this and doing that. So they said, okay, fine. They said, you got to do like everyone else. You have to get uh, special insurance, not offered by uh, all state and like all state and those guys, they won't insure you. So you have to get special insurance that's only offered in, the, in New York City. Uh, they call it the TLC insurance. It's pretty much commercial insurance for ride hailing vehicle drivers. 
okay? So it would it'd be like $1,500 down, and that's if your license is clean, okay, to, to get the insurance, and they charge you like, I don't know, $500 a month or something like that, right? And then you would have to pay like $600 to the, uh, to the New York State DMV to get special plates to identify you as a TLC driver. That's where you see the license plates that begin with the T and end with the C. That means TLC, New York City TLC. Right. And then they, you would have to get that car inspected by the city. So just like how you would have a, the, the state um, do the yearly inspection, this would be an inspection done every four months by the city, by the TLC inspection center. Okay. okay. So that's so that's what gives special protection for um, th that's what makes New York City unique. So because of that, because of the TLC, they couldn't Uber couldn't get away. The TLC is there to protect the public, protect the drivers, and all that stuff. That's why it's hard for for Uber to get away with charging, like there is a minimum wage in New York City. TLC mandates that Uber has to pay this much, at least this much. Okay. Okay. But what happened was, so this, this is what was happening. Um, so I came in on, on that round. So what happened was, um, even though the regulations were supposed to be within the boundaries of New York City, and even though the insurance would cover you no matter where you drove, no matter where you might have your accident, right? Uber didn't stop giving you calls outside of New York City. You, you feel what I'm saying? So, those yeah, that makes that makes sense. Um, I don't think like I told you guys, like my husband drove for Uber and Lyft for a short period when we were trying to save for save up for our wedding, along with his full time mm -hmm. job. I don't remember anything about a TLC or anything like that. So I'm not sure if we, I don't think we have that in reference we, to we, like the I think, drivers. Hmm? I think New York City. Uh, hello? Did someone say something? Yeah, okay. Yeah, um, you live in New York, Roger? I live in New York. I don't live in New York City. I work in New York City, but I don't live in New York City. But I do live outside. I do live in New York State outside of the city. Can, can you use the driver's cooperative? Do you use them? Co-op ride. Well, yeah, I stopped messing with them because there was some things that I saw that I was not feeling. Oh, so God. I left back during the <laughs> summertime. That's a whole different story. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't like the way uh, the the um, the f two two of the three founders. The third founder left last year. Um, I don't like to the what the two founders have it anyway. It's, it's a whole story, but anyway, um, what do you call it? Uh, 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 uh. So yeah, so pretty pretty much. Oh yeah, yeah. So what what would happen is, even though those regulations would be for New York City, it's not like Uber would stop giving you calls if you weren't in New York City. So I would be getting calls, but it's funny because the TLC regulations would still apply in terms of uh, how much you would get um, paid per trip, you know, like in terms of uh, the amount they charge on time and distance and, and for picking up the person. 
okay? But here's, here's what was happening. We were taking um, rides away from the local cab companies. Now, out here in Nassau County, we have our own TLC. Suffolk County has their own TLC. Westchester has their own TLC. I don't know about north of Westchester. I don't know how it operates upstate. But what was happening was, now the way the taxis work out, used to work out in the suburbs was it would be dispatch calls, okay? So what would happen is you would, um, when um, the Oil Island, which was the biggest taxi company in, in Nassau County, and they stretch in the Suffolk, uh, there's a lot of corruption because the owner was on the board of the Nassau County TLC. <laughs> so uh, when his drivers was coming back with low books, he was like, what's up with these low books? And he was just like, oh, well, Uber's taking all our drivers, or taking all our calls or whatever. He said, I'll see to that. So what he would do is he would have, he, he'd have his, his TLC agents hand out um, fines to, to, to Uber drivers, two fines, one for not having a Nassau County TLC license and one for not having a Nassau County TLC um, plate or decal sticker. I had a license for the city and Nassau County, but since I was driving someone else's car and they were not going to um, get a decal or plates for Nassau County, I would only get hit with one fine. But both of those fines were $750, okay? So Uber would pay for them, okay? So what would happen is when you would go to pay that fine, and you walk into the county seat in Mineola, that, that's, that's, the county seat is, is, is a fancy name for the capital of a county. And you would, you would go in there and you would walk down the hallway to pay the fine. You would see five seats on one side of the hallway and five seats on the other side of the hallway. And they were always filled with Uber drivers. And you could, you could look at them and be like, you guys are not from out here. You guys are from, from New York City, right? And that would be... $1,500 a driver. So in one pop, the county was getting $15,000 in that one sitting right there. So after a year and a half, they bought in, almost, the county bought in almost $10 million, okay? Uber would do this thing where they purposely, I don't know if people know this, but when a call comes up, Uber does not tell you, okay? And this is what everyone should know. Uber does not tell the driver where the customer is going until the customer gets in the car and the driver starts the trip. Yeah, I was going to okay? say, my husband told me that. He said, you don't know their destination until they actually get into the car. Yep. And you start the trip. So what would happen is Uber did this thing where they would purposely keep you away from your home. Okay. So I didn't, I didn't discover this until, so they do that because if you're near your home, you're going to be like, oh, let me stop at home real quick and, you know, I don't know, take a shower, brush my teeth, eat, whatever the case is, get lazy, may not come back out. And if I do come back out, that'll be time lost where I'm not making the money. So nine times out of 10, if you lived outside of New York City, they would give you a call going to New York City, but they wouldn't give you a call going back. Okay. It would be the opposite if you lived in New York City. Nine times out of 10, they give you a call coming out here. But one time out of 10, they give you a call going back. That's why when you walked into the, uh, into the TLC Nassau County thing, you saw that it was all Uber drivers from New York City. You'd be like, you don't live out here. You know what I mean? So after a while, Uber said, okay, 
Uber was paying the fines and they said, okay, enough of this. We're not paying for this shit no more. But I know people, so they lobby. just to let people know, like there are people that are Uber drivers here in Boston and they're from like New Jersey. Like I've been picked up by drivers that live in New Jersey and like they say they would just come up to Boston for the weekend and they would just drive people from the bars and stuff because you can do pretty well if you come up here on a Friday night or a Saturday night, you can make pretty good money if you're just picking up people from the bars because the taxi cabs, the taxi cabs don't want to pick up drunk people. I'm just being honest with you guys. So in our in our uh, subway stops at like 1 a.m. So the bars close at two. So that's another thing people will run into. But um. Did they not like in New York? Like, I'm wondering, like, can someone from Boston go to New York City and Uber drive there for a weekend or no? No. And that's that's exactly what I was going to jump on. So what happened is, is this right? Uber lobbied Albany. Albany is the state capital of New York State in case anyone doesn't know. Right. They went over everybody's head and they had them pass a law. It's a TNC law, Transportation Network Corporation law that neutralized all um, municipalities from regulating Uber across the state, except for New York City. So now what happened was, okay, before that law passed in the 2017 um, budget uh, bill, right? You would be able to, like you said, pick up anywhere and go anywhere, okay? Because remember what I told you about Uber keeps you away from your home on purpose? Right. I used I used to I used I've never been to Connecticut so many times than when I drove for Uber. I've never been to New Jersey so many times when I drove for Uber. And they would never give me a call going back to New York State. It was very rare when they give me a call going back to New York State. They'd have me out in New Jersey. I'm I'm trying to make sure I don't run over skunks. I've never seen a skunk before in real life. I, I, they got deer all over the place. I'm like, holy shit, we got geese out here. They I, they got deer. I'm like, damn. You know what I'm saying? The Connecticut, I would be in Connecticut all night. They never give me a call back unless I turn the app and go back. But once they um, passed that law, they broke Uber into twos, one for city and one for the, for the rest of the state. Okay. So what that would mean is if you, if you can either work for Uber New York City or Uber for the rest of the state, you can't do both unless you have two Uber accounts. And the only way you have two Uber accounts is if you have two cars. One that is New York City TLC plated regulated with the license plate and all that different type of stuff. And one which is a regular car. Now, here's the here's the conundrum. You can't tell if you're working for for Uber for the state, you can't tell all state, state farm, and all of them that you're gonna be using that car for um you know, to, for Uber, because they'll be like, no, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So Uber says, all right, don't worry about it. We'll cover you. All right. I, I wouldn't trust them as far as I can throw them. But, uh, you know, I had two cars at one point that, you know, because I was driving for, for like both pretty much. Right. So the thing, the thing is you can't have, um, you can only drive for both New York City and outside New York City if you had two Uber accounts with two cars and two different email addresses. Okay, so here's a, here's a thing: if you you're always taking a chance because if you get into an accident, even though Uber says let's says they'll cover it, all right, that's not going to stop the customer from finding out what insurance company 
you, you, you know, you use regularly. So the Uber insurance would kick in when the customer wasn't in the car. No, sorry, when the customer was in the car and your Allstate would kick in when they're not in the car. But if you get in an accident, you think that their lawyer is going to stop it, just Uber, they're going to find out who else, you know, they're going to do the investigation. And then they're going to try to get money from Allstate or State Farm or Geico. And then, they, then they're going to say, hold up, wait a minute, what? He was using a car for, uh, for, for ride hailing? Oh, no. First of all, you get no money because he violated the uh, terms of the agreement. And therefore, he's dropped. On top of that, um, they might even blacklist you. You know, Allstate might tell Geico, Geico might tell State Farm, whatever the case is. Oh. So if you're out there driving, I'm telling you, be careful. Don't get no accidents. If you do, make sure it's not your fault, whatever the case is. Okay. So what happened was when they made that law. All right. So this part is the complicated part. If you are a New York City TLC driver and you are outside of New York City, the only calls that Uber will give you are calls going to New York City. So like I told you before, where before that, let's say if I was out in Connecticut or New Jersey or upstate, right, and they could have me there all night, now they will only give me calls going back to New York City. Once you pick up in New York City, I mean, once you get to New York City, they could give you a call and you could take that person. They'll, they'll give you a call going anywhere, okay? However, if you are a state driver, you can take people to New York City. You can take people to other states. You can take people upstate. But once you're in New York City, Uber's not going to give you a call once you're in New York City. You have to either go from Bronx to Westchester County or Queens to Nassau County before they'll start giving you calls again. Okay. Okay. So, I think... Um, I, I want to make sure because we got a, a, a line of, of callers. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. My bad. Yeah, I, but, but I just you know, wanted. That's... Yeah, I just wanted to say that, like, but the whole situation with the Uber drivers being on strike right now, this again goes back to the whole worker co-op issue because they don't have a mm -hmm. union. They're independent contractors, so they can't have mm -hmm. a union. They don't get benefits, and they're able to exploit these workers. Like they're just, I mean, and I get it. They feel like the idea shouldn't be that you should use this as a full-time job. But then I also say BS to that because you have taxi drivers who have that as oh. their full-time job, you know? Yeah. Oh, and but I want to bring uh, Marco. Okay. My bad. I just wanted to make ahead, sure sorry. Marco, did you have anything to add to that in reference to like the Uber strike? Uh, no, not too much. Yeah. Um, I, I'd love to talk to you more about organizing worker co-ops. I'm, I'm working with the driver's co-op to bring it to my city. I'm in Portland. But um, but yeah, I would love to talk to you more. And thanks for having me on. Thank you so much, Marco. Good Let's to talk go to Roger. ahead. Roger's always giving us a wealth of information. Let's go ahead and bring in uh, Brent. Brent, how are you doing? Good, good. So there's a couple things I, I wanted to say. So um, I was thinking about our conversation uh, the last call-in, and um, I was actually in L.A. coming from the Clippers game, and um, I saw this lady yelling at her kids, saying all oh, the F word, everything. I thought to myself, if only she had more sunshine. I don't know. <laughs> you remember, Brent. 
I just got it. And I, I've had this. I, I mean, I, I don't mean to offend, like to offend you or anything, but that, I just had this. I just thought that I'm like, oh, savvy. She she thinks people they just need more sunshine and <laughs> man, baby, she should have got more sunshine. I mean, uh, well, anyway, that's just um the the fun part. So the more serious topic I want to discuss was um. The homeless situation in LA. I know you talk about it. I don't know. Have you ever been to California? I have not. Okay, that explains a lot then. Um, so LA has a worse problem than what the media is explaining. Um, yeah. When I- Karen Bass says there's like a state of emergency, um, I don't think those were. She, she's not acting with enough urgency, like. When I was coming from the Clippers, and there's pe- rows of homeless people. Literally, I counted probably f- ten to fifteen homeless people just going to the subway, and then probably another fifteen inside the station. And it's it's become such a huge problem that um, I don't. It's it's a really huge problem. Um, it's gone so bad that. I was uh, talking with a, a contractor to install security cameras in the building, and the contractor said, "Oh, maybe you should put uh, cameras over here to secure the homeless, to um, secure your building from the homeless." And what happened was there was a homeless guy who came out of the bushes, and he said, "You're worried about me. You should be worried about the one trillion that our our government is sending to Ukraine." That's what what you should be worried about, not be sleeping here. <laughs> right. And I was just shocked. Right. And then um, after the guy left, um, the guy I was talking to said, like, oh, if we give the money to the homeless, they're just going to waste it. And I wasn't surprised to hear that because that's just the mentality people have is if you give money to the homeless, they quote unquote waste it. But right. um, they're just going to like throw it away. Uh, CJ did uh, a stream when Rome went to L.A. for tour for the poor. Yeah. And that was the first time I actually saw the real amount of homeless people in L.A. Like it was rows and rows of homeless people like Rome went there for tour for the poor and they were giving out like, you know, food and clothing and toiletries and everything to people. And it was just like, I I can't even express it, Brent. I mean, obviously, you know, you've been there, but it was appalling to see just rows and rows of homeless people. And we have 10 community here in Boston too. We have homeless problem, but it is nothing like what I saw on that stream for LA. Oh, and it's, it's just crazy. You go on any subway you take the tra- the rail, you'll see trash everywhere. It's just, uh, it's trash everywhere. People in tents, like, and people with, the tents are so bad, like, worn out, the tents aren't even functional anymore. Like, the, the one I saw in the Washington, D.C., that's a really nice tent. Like, the people in L.A. have been on the streets for so long, the tents are worn out, and, there's, and people aren't, they don't even have money to get a new tent. That's how bad it is in in, in L.A. And and Karen Bass, she's not going to do anything. She's another corrupt. Poli- she just she says the right words, but she won't do anything. Um, so I agree. Yeah, just wanted to say that. 
I agree. Well, it was really questionable to me when she brought up the fact of, yeah, maybe we can privatize. And I'm like, uh, no, 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 they don't, they don't care. Um, they don't care about the, the homeless problem. It, it, it won't be fixed. I don't know if you remember, Maxine Waters came by and said, told people to go home. And these people, yep. yeah, they don't have a home. And she doesn't care about, she doesn't hang out in uh, uh, crypto.com arena. That's what it's called. It used to be called Stableside. Now it's crypto.com. She, if she goes to any event there, she's probably leaving in a limo. But I take the subway and I see the consequences of their inaction. It's just appalling. Like people are asking, like asking for money. Like it, it's, it's in, it's in rows. Like it's, it's like there's people asking for money, probably one person, every block. It's, it's, terrible. So, it's, it's, it's terrible. really bad. Yeah. I don't believe her, her either. I think that, God, I think it's just more empty promises, like, to be honest with you. I just don't believe this woman. And you mean to tell me, I mean, L.A. has had this problem for how many years now? I remember hearing about Skid Row when I was a kid. Right. And they've yeah, had Yeah, I heard about that. Years. I didn't know what that was. Yeah, all these Sorry. different politicians. Nobody has fixed this issue. So no, it's Skid Row is overwhelmed. There's t- Skid Row is the the encampment but it's it's spread because skid row is probably five blocks away from crypto.com arena um i think five six uh maybe more so those skid row is being overwhelmed so people are moving farther farther towards the arena to the point where it's people are lined up um right next to the arena and the only reason they're being kicked out is because uh people have their private security shoo them away but Mm-hmm. yeah it's really it's really bad over here so i don't well it's like max blumenthal pointed out tonight when we talked about this earlier tonight this is the thing he pointed out just two blocks down from congress and the white house there were homeless encampments so you have like homeless people just right down the street from an area that has so much concentrated wealth and power and it's embarrassing to see but this is the United States. And that's the thing I've tried to tell people before. A lot of times I think people think when we say homeless people, they just assume, okay, this is people sleeping on a park bench, someone sleeping in the subway. No, like there's like rows of tents of people down the street from an institution of concentrated wealth and nothing is being done. And I don't care what city you live in. Well, with the exception of the state of Mississippi, Mississippi has tried to challenge this in a different way. And to solve homelessness is to build more homes and their homeless population has decreased. But I don't care what city you're living in, especially if you're on the coast, West Coast, East Coast. I don't see anybody solving this issue. Yeah, they don't care. Like um, the the wealthy, they don't they just send their kids um, to the 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 best school like harvard i think i really think that the people you met from california have the rich they're from the rich families they got they paid their they paid the admissions officers so the kids can go to harvard i think those are the people those are the californians that you're seeing that's yes, why they're they're happy they <laughs> i mean you have to have money to come here like you have to have money to go to college here like you really do right. like, 
So the kids that come from out of state, like from California, like their parents have money. They have money. They're bribing the admission. It's, it's all corrupt. I know the, the game inside out that they, they have their parents are super because L.A., the, the, the kids that are in the private schools, they're super rich. Like, but the, but the public schools are super poor. So you see a huge divide. Um, the, the, the wealthy schools like uh, Harvard, Westlake, Campbell Hall, all those schools, they have private security, people uh, scouting the sidewalk. All, but the public schools are um, they're a mess with homeless everywhere. And the only thing they L.A. wants to do is they do what is called um, anti-homeless architecture. So basically, they instead of solving the homeless problem, they they make it harder for people to uh, sleep on the benches. They 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 put like a divider, and they and in some areas they put spikes on the bench on like the the windows on like the um like the niches, so homeless they people can't sleep. City. They got That's that right. in New York City too. That's right. It's terrible. A terrible thing but this is something that chris hedges was talking about earlier tonight like we have to fight back against these oligarchs like this is a, it's embarrassing listen i have never seen this before in my life in all the years i've lived in the u.s i've never seen it this bad real yeah cause it's because of covid um newsom he imposed a very strict um lockdown and when i heard he was doing that uh doing that i thought uh-oh if he's not going to address the homeless problem, the homeless problem is going to worsen. And the the consequences of his actions without addressing the homelessness, um, you're seeing it today. Um, people people that that are not drug addicts are on the streets now, and it's really um, it's really something. So it's really I don't know what we could do. Yeah, it's really sad. And again, right. it's like. There's so much wealth that's concentrated at the top. I mean, Bernie Sanders was right about this. There's a lot of wealth concentrated at the top and no one's done anything about it. Those people get richer and poor people get poor. Right, right. And I mean, Roger talks about ballot initiatives, but um, he doesn't, I don't, I don't know if he's been in California, but there is so, the politics is so corrupt that there's 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 like lobbies groups they find ways to um cancel it like make it so it doesn't even pass like there was something um greenpeace they did something to address the Huntington beat and the oil spill it got it got stalled because of something uh congress did i don't know what they did and um i i believe it was because of the fossil fuel interest, industry so it's kind of like nothing gets done in california because of the politic the the corrupt politicians. So when I hear Roger talk about ballot initiatives, I think about the time when I was optimistic and I, um, and then I realized the ugly, the ugliness of California politics. And the only way you get rid of it is you get rid of the money. Um, so, so, here, what, you're saying. so what do you think about what, like tonight, Chris Hedges and I talked about like, maybe shifting the focus to local politics oh um, it's 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 all corrupt california politics is all it's at every level there's some level of corruption um it's really ridiculous like even at the local level um yeah there's some sort of like they're, they're all focused on uh the quote-unquote the, the rich people they anything that helps the poor 
very rarely gets passed and I don't, they must be bought. I don't know, but they must be bought somehow. I don't know, but that's but just, I mean, like, but I mean, like, you know, California is probably what the perfect example. Um, we were talking about more so on the grassroots level, like the ballot initiatives, things like that. But you have to look at a state like California and you have to ask this question. How is it in a state with so many millionaires? How the hell do you have that many people living in poverty? Let's remember what's in California. You have Hollywood. You have movie stars, musicians, like millions and millions, of, millions and millions and millions of dollars and billions of dollars. You have ultra super rich people in San Francisco, also San Jose now from what I've been reading, which is now also unaffordable. You have Silicon Valley, which has billionaires and millionaires. Why are there so many poor people and homeless people in California in the state with that many rich people? Something I think I know why, Sabi, because uh, living here, I know the the way um, the politicians, they they talk very good. So they say they they phrase things in a way so they manipulate the voters to vote against their interests. I see it at the local level and I see it obviously with news like at the federal level, the politicians, the, the ones that serve the, the wealthy, they talk in a way that. It's people they vote for them just because they present themselves well. They're focus. They don't focus on the substance. They focus on the, on the presentation. That's what that's what I believe. They focus on the presentation. Oh, are they edu quote unquote educated? Do they are do they do they present themselves well? Blah, all that kind of stuff. I I don't think they trick people into voting against their interests. That's why I believe. Nothing gets done in California because people are too focused on the the superficial, the the presentation rather than the um, the actual substance, and that's why, um, yeah, that's why Obama but won. About, but what about the wealth, though, Brent? The concentrated wealth, like oh, example, the wealth. Like, oh, I'm. I mean, like, what's, I, what's how many people would you say? Let me phrase this differently. How likely is it? that someone that is graduating college like i don't know maybe graduated college like four years ago and is living in southern california how likely is it that they'll be able to buy a home in california no almost impossible i i i know this that's not popular that's not the answer people that's not the the, the politically correct but no um, because the prices are so ridiculous. Um, and the wealthy people, they buy up the homes and they, um, pay off the politicians to, um, allow to, uh, prevent any sort of, um, appropriate rent control. It's, they just buy up, they just buy up, uh, the wealthy people, they buy up the homes and they jack up the price. <laughs> but it's like, yeah, it's almost impossible. How did it get that way, Brent? Because it wasn't always that way. You see what I mean? Like, this is just, yeah. and, and I, I hate to pick on California. It's because Brent's on the call, but it's not just California. That's the reality of it. It's, right. it's states like my state, like Massachusetts. Like, I mean, you have a little bit more leeway here. Uh, if you, depending on where you live, if you go further out in Western Massachusetts, like you have a better chance of being able to buy a home. 
But how did this happen? How did we get here in this country? How many people, and Roger can probably answer this question, how many people actually own a home in New York City? People that you, like, I don't know anyone who owns a condo, even a condo in New York City. I don't know anyone that can afford to, and I'm talking about friends of mine that are professionals. I have friends that are lawyers. I have friends that are engineers. They can't afford to buy a condo in New York City, and now not even in northern New Jersey. Wow. So, um, Brent. Yeah? Hey, how you doing, bro? Good. Um, I never said it was going to be easy. But oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course not. I will say this. From my perspective, you have a better chance of passing a ballot initiative um, than I do. Because I don't even have that option. You see what I'm saying? You use whatever tools you've got. Um, there's always going to be big money. No matter what. Right. Anything, that, anything that punches up against power. There's always going to be big money. One of the big, biggest things I see between the left and the right is the left throws their hands up in the air and says, oh, forget it. The right just keeps going on. They keep going on. They keep going on. You feel what I'm saying? Um, you could do it. Like one of the things, one of, one of the things that I was talking to um, some grassroots groups here about was I said, listen, we need a, we need a law, and I would suggest you guys do it as an amendment, but an amendment that says that outlaws private equity from owning housing, because that's what's driving up the, because they engage in rent speculation. They do that over here, too. They do it everywhere, okay? When, when um, Obama, as senator, voted for Bush's bailout in 2008, and then he became president and didn't bail us out. So all that government money went to these, you know, Wall Street uh, fat cats, right? And then, and then you had the 2020 COVID crash, and they gave more to them in the CARES Act. So they've been buying up all the homes, housing across the country, and then engaging in rent speculation on Wall Street that jacks up the price. You see what I'm saying? That, if you outlaw that, and I say do it as an amendment to your state constitution, um, using the process, ballot initiative process, not as a law, because if you do it as a law, then then the government is just going to be like, oh, that that's a nice uh, law you got there. Too bad we're going to rip it apart, okay? Any, but if you and and they can do it without asking you first. At least if you pass it as an amendment, then the gov the state government has to ask you first. Hey, can we do something with this? And you could you know tell them a big fuck you or whatever the case is. You see what I'm saying? Also, um, just like, okay, the public banking bill that I call it the permission slip bill, that's to allow, that's the state government allowing um, municipalities to start their own public bank. That passed because the, um, the voters, the, the, you know, the Californians, they use the ballot initiative as leverage. To, to, to make them do it because they just, they said, you know what, we'll just do it ourselves. And whenever there's, um, I, I was reading the California, uh, how California does uh, ballot initiatives, uh, even though it's a direct state where after a successful petition drive, 
you guys um can you guys your ballot gets your initiative gets placed directly on the ballot the government the california government still has like a hearing or whatever and says hey maybe we can you know uh, pass this ourselves or whatever and from what i from, from what i learned that's how the permission slip for public banking got passed because they weren't going to do it until they saw that people were serious about that bill and they filed for it as an initiative and it was coming down the pike and they said, you know, politicians have ego. So they said, let's get let's get ahead of this and pass it ourselves. So now, like I've been seeing, you know, like a little uh, public bank L.A. and some other things. But public banks is a way that tamps down on speculation. And they, you know, like the, one of the things they do is infrastructure, um, um, what do you call it, uh, uh, housing. Um, just like on that thing before where North Dakota with that. They have a public bank. They're number 51 in homelessness. They got the lowest homelessness rate um, as well. You see what I'm saying? But I'm just saying, you know, look, yeah, we know it's corrupt. It's, it's big money involved, whatever the case is. But I'm looking right here, and I see Californians still got initiatives on the ballot this past election, okay, amendments and, and things. Some passed and some didn't, but at least it got to the got to the ballot. So. You know, I'm just saying that, you know, the, you know, don't give up and, and ask for help. You know what I mean? Just like ask for help from across the country. You know, you, you got family here that's willing to be like, yo, you know what I'm saying? Donate to our grassroots campaign or whatever the case is. Phone bank for us. You know what I'm saying? We're, we're all trying to build something here cooperatively. You feel what I'm saying? So. I don't want people thinking that they're that they're on their own. You feel what I'm saying? And and I'm just saying you can't give up because the thing is, I'm dependent on you because there's no way we're gonna do it unless they see oh shit because they say it all starts in the states and the states that it usually starts with are the ballot initiative states. You know, we just got around the passing uh, uh, um, weed legalization after all the ballot initiative states did it first. Well, almost all the ballot issues they did it first. We just got around to it years later. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, I'm not trying to put no pressure on you. It's just that all of us are depending on you. <laughs> Good luck with that, Brent. No pressure, though. <laughs> A line from airplane. Um, I want to make sure I get to um, other callers as well. Uh, Brent, were you finished there or... Mm-mm. Uh-oh. I think we lost Brent. Oh, no. See, Roger, you scared Brent away. I just... <laughs> All right. Maybe maybe something happened. Brent, we'll we'll come back if, if um, you're available. All right. Uh, we're going to bring in Frank. You are on the mic. Hi, Sabby. Hey, what's going on? Um, I... I, I did watch uh, part of I, did, I missed the Chris Hedges part, and uh, I certainly agree it's a it's a local and state issue because that's where the regulation is supposed to be, and it's not existent. And I did I did uh, what I did tune into the last part or the I saw your Uber part. I I tuned in, and I I started. I, that's what I, when I tuned in, you were showing a clip of a of a movie where you said. The, the the state and local regulators couldn't do anything about Uber. Like, what? <laughs> In San Francisco, yeah. 
Yeah, in San yeah. Francisco. Yeah, and guess who's the mayor? Gavin Newsom. You you think he regulates <laughs> anything? No. <laughs> not 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 Getty Oil, Gavin. <laughs> he doesn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it, we we have literally no regulation uh, um, at, at the local and state level. Um, so I, I'm wondering how how can we best organize um, information that um, you know proves that there this is a real problem because you know what you know there, there's three parts of neoliberalism. There's the oppression oppression on the poor, the and the middle class, the austerity. There's the deregulation with, that we don't talk about too much. And then we, we talk about the, the lack of taxation, those three parts. The lack of taxation does, you know, put more money. The deregulation lets them be as lawless as they want to be so they can make as maximized profits all they want to. So, um, you know, in, in, uh, you know, Uber is, is just isn't regulated, but the government could do it. And I know, um, the, uh, Uber did uh, sue the state of Colorado bef before they actually uh, started um, here in federal courts, just so that they they they, they must have had a, a bundle of money to start with, because they were starting out with lawsuits just to get into state states so they couldn't be regulated. They had investors. They did have investors they, in the beginning. Must have, yeah. must have had very big. And mm -hmm. I also remember, I think it was about 2014, just before, after that loss, after they won their lawsuit in federal court, because judges don't care about regulation either. <laughs> mm -hmm. And they don't care about law, really. They write what they want to, to, to get the result they want. And, um, and so they, they did have, there was a, a bill before uh, the legislator to, to legislate, uh, legislation uh, before the general assembly and about 300 taxi uh, taxi cab drivers showed up at that hearing saying please do some regulation because we're going to be out of business and mm. um they didn't do anything i mean that bill ended up, ended up dying and um you know so it, it's not it's not that the state and the local couldn't regulate them it's that they won't and they've probably taken a lot of bribes to do that Yes, there was a lot of money involved. Um, from what I saw from that video, like they did have like large investors. And so yeah. there, that was part of the problem. Um, but I think like you're in Colorado, so you're yeah. actually in luck. You're in a state that is, that tends to be, and don't take this the wrong way, but based on what I've yeah. seen, it tends to be a test state for whatever reason. Like, oh, big time, seems, big time, big <laughs> time. It seems like to me, it's like, Hey, let's see if universal basal, basic uh, income is going to work. Okay, let's yep. try it out in Colorado. <laughs> yes. Yep. And, and Denver Boulder area has um, more uh, federal employees than any other place except for the Washington, Metro Washington, D.C. So it's sort of a second capital and it's treated mm -hmm. that way. So that's why one of the reasons why we get, you know, um, the treatment of, of uh, um, being a test area. And, we, and right, actually right across the street from where I live is uh, the National Council of uh, State Legislators offices. So um, they coordinate um, for all the, all the state legislators, many of these bills. Um, so 
Yeah, we're definitely a test state. It's not only the UBI um, for for homeless people, um, which the University of Denver uh, actually did those studies. And another part of the study that they found is that homeless people, even if they're even when they get housed, um, their their lifespans still get shortened because they were homeless. And that that That's right. the, li the lifespan, whether they were out or in, really just gets shortened quite a bit anyways. And That's I, right. I, did, I did spend 13 years into forced homelessness by John Hickenlooper personally. They still steal, mm. steal my driver's license. I haven't had above the table income in seven years. So um, yeah, and, and, and what, you have any ideas on what we can do to organize to get some of the, you know, the information out um, at the state and local level and all the corruption that goes on? Yeah, well, I think that, again, because you're in Colorado, your state tends to be a little bit more, uh, I would say, lenient when it comes to trying to get some of these, like, progressive issues passed, right? Like, let's try out a UBI. Let's yeah. try recreational marijuana and have, like, cannabis shops. Like, yep. so you, you're luckily, like, you are in one of those states where you have... Um, I think a little bit more leeway there, but I would say like one of the things that like Chris Hedges was saying tonight is like, you got to do like grassroots organizing. And I'm pretty sure there are grassroots organizations in your state. I yeah. recommend looking for those that are not political. The, yeah. The, the, there's so right. many Demo Democrats that infiltrate the, everything I found. Um, so it, it's, yeah. it, and I, I get shut. They Democrats literally attack me. Like I spent 13 years homeless, not by any fault of my own. Uh, Democrats have gone after me to keep me from making money. I mean, they stole my driver's license. Still have it now for 10 years. I didn't do anything wrong. Um, they, mm. they just won't give it back. Well, well, I know where's where's Zach at? He's from Colorado. He on here? You, if you, you could, this is something right here where you could connect with people. I mean, okay. Colorado, Colorado is a ballot initiative state. Yes. I, you yep. know what I mean? And I always tell people, if you have the ability to, to, to pass ballot initiatives and it allows you to amend your state constitution using yep. a ballot initiative, do that. Don't yep. use it to pass laws only use it to pass laws when it comes to things that are kind of like benign, like an upgrade at the uh, sewage plant at Elmo's Point or something like that. But yeah. when it comes to things that punch up at power, yeah, you have to pass that as an amendment. Yeah. You see yeah, what I'm that, saying? And that's pretty much the role of the Democratic Party here. Uh, you can do anything you want, but if, it, if you're going to change the power structure, it's a no. <laughs> right. So... With, at least with an amendment, an amendment. If, you, if you pass it, what will happen is if they want to repeal it, they have to ask the voters first. You yeah. see what I'm saying? Where if you pass mm -hmm. it as a law, they don't have to ask you and they just, but they do what they want. Now, you yeah. guys passed uh, weed legalization sometime uh -huh. ago. That's my favorite fault and I don't smoke. <laughs> and here's the thing, though. You have no place to put the money if you're in that business. Because yeah. the banks have to abide by federal regulations if they want FDIC insurance, okay? Yeah. But if, if you pass a ballot initiative as an amendment for a Colorado state public bank, okay, 
then they can replace the FDIC and be the insurer of community banks and credit unions. Because yeah. like in North Dakota, the credit unions and, and, uh, and community banks don't insure with FDIC, they insure with the state. So the state yeah. backs them up. So because of that, now you wouldn't, because the, the federal government says, hey, you want FDIC insurance? Then you got to abide by the by federal rank banking regulations or else you don't get it. But you have to have yeah. insurance, except this time it would be the state that would be your insurance that would be the insurer of credit unions and community banks. Now yeah. you would have a place to bank at, to put your profits at, instead of um, being possibly subjected to armed robberies because people know that you got money on the, on the, on the uh, premises. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? And, um, but, and it also, you talk about homelessness. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it builds, you know, like it tamps down on, like I said before, it tamps down on spec, rent speculation and it, it puts money toward uh, low-income housing, affordable housing, whatever the term is. Or, you know what I'm saying? It puts money toward that. So it it definitely you know solves a lot of problems or whatever. But I'm just saying, yo, yeah, January, you could get together with people. This this is look. I'm working with people in Arizona, and they they're pretty much like vote blue no matter who whatever but they they agree on the ballot initiative for single payer that's where we're coming together at okay you see what i'm saying and that's where mm-hmm. we're going to work together on you know yeah. so yeah but that's and, with, and with the marijuana they 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 made sure it only got two licenses to uh very wealthy white men um there was only one person in the whole state that was allowed to sell marijuana up and up until just now Two more have been allowed to have. Two more black people have been allowed to have licenses, and that that black that black woman actually was Polis's um, uh, campaign manager from two thousand eight. So had to have connections. <laughs> Otherwise, it was just a few select wealthy white men that were getting those licenses. Oh, and and it a oh, uh, uh, public bank works syn- synchronously with yeah. co-ops so you were talking about the that can kind of break that industry up where you have uh, producer cooperatives establishing supply chains with multi-stakeholder cooperatives so you you can have a producer cooperative that's actually which, which is agricultural that would be like growing it you know mm-hmm. what i mean and they have li- licenses for growth. Yeah, licenses for growth and licenses for delivery in both medical and um, recreational. So there's six there's six different licenses in in, right. in marijuana. Yeah, and a you can if, if that was a if that was if that was a cooperative supply chain. You know what I mean? This is this is this is how you kind of like you know build you know worker power and you know, and, and, and build up pretty much, you know, you ballot initiatives leading toward public banking, leading toward uh, uh, worker cooperatives, low income housing, you know what I mean? And just boom, boom, boom. It's, you know, it's, it's a step-by-step uh, process. I'm not saying it's going to happen overnight, but. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that would be like best. Like Roger has a good point that like, it does take, multiple steps unfortunately so do a lot of things in life it seems like but um 
But those steps are necessary to get there. Like Marco was just telling us tonight that like they got their ballot initiative uh, approved. So they're yeah. going to be on the ballot. You know, I'm sure Marco can tell you that took like a lot of planning and hard work. You know, I missed that. What did he get on on the ballot in what state? The right for um, residents that are evicted to have representation. Yeah, we've actually got We've actually got that in Denver now, too. Marco, you're in what, Washington? I forgot. Frank is in Colorado. Marco's in Portland, Oregon. Oh, a ballot yeah. initiative state. Yeah. I hope you got it as, a, as an amendment. Plus, Oregon, like, Oregon decriminalized all drugs. You guys know that, right? Yep. They did. They did. Did, did you get it as, a, as an amendment ballot initiative or a state statute ballot initiative, Marco? Or is Marco, Marco still here? I don't know. I invited him to speak. Michael J. I do want to go ahead. I want to make sure I get to some of the other okay, callers. Sorry. Okay. Um, thank you so much, Frank. Yep. Thank you. Okay. We are going to bring in the one and only Eric Gray. Hello. <laughs> Greetings. What's up, Eric? Nothing much. Just enjoying break, I guess. The start of my break. I know you're ready for the holidays, right? Yeah. Students students begging like, uh, can, uh, can you create this? Uh, can, uh, you know I had you turn that in like a long time ago, right? <laughs> Gotta love the gotta love the immaturity. Students always came up to me with that, like same thing. I would always tell them, like, okay, we're going into the holiday break. Please don't come up to me like last minute, the day of, because that's the early release day. Don't come to me that day asking me to do these things for you. Go ahead and turn those things in before. And there would always be that one student that would be like Sabrina, Sabrina, I forgot. I'm so sorry. And I'm like, damn it to hell. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. Um, it, it looks like local, it looks like local, like actual politics itself is going to be the way to go. Um, Especially what you're, what you're seeing with what's going on with some of these school boards and whatnot. I mean, my my state's a ballot initiative state, and as you can see, it's a case where you have some of these right-wingers getting on um, school boards and shit. Um, even, even in my small-ass city, Ron DeSantis literally ran candidates against people and just, like, it basically, like people felt like they were running against Ron DeSantis and not the actual person. <laughs> I could see that. Um, Meg, uh, Meg was a part of RBN back when we were FHL. Meg has told me a lot about Florida, so I can understand that. And I think that um, if you look at it on the local level, I mean, Florida passed fifteen dollar minimum wage. Yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, but there's there's a little thing you got to know about that. Um, <laughs> it's it's fifteen dollars, but not really. Um, 
it doesn't really kick in until 2026. Yeah, it's like that for it was like that for all of us though, Eric. Yeah. Like, even when we when we passed it here in Massachusetts a couple years ago, I think we I'll have to check with my husband. I think we're just at the 15 now. But it was the same way. It was incremental. Jesus, such a tease. It's true. Um, I'm I'm sorry, but like every state I've heard of so far like has done it that same way. Like it's not 15 immediately because the thing is when it comes to like the small businesses, they at least have to give them time to adjust. So that's that's where a lot of that comes in because it's a big jump going from $7.25 an hour to $15 an hour. So you have to give like at least the small, not the corporate, the, the big corporations, but like the mom and pop shops and stuff like that. Like you have to give them some time to adjust to be able to pay that. So I think that's why it's incremental like that. But I will say that like, just to point that out, though, I mean, in reference to like what Chris Hedges said is like, and he's in New Jersey and that's not a B.I. state. And even Chris Hedges will tell you, like, grassroots organizing on the local level is the way you should go. That's why I love to ask him that question. I'm like, let me see what Chris Hedges has to say about this, because I've gotten like criticism from people about like, let's focus on the local level, like let's focus on what we can change. Right. And some people are like, so you want us to just give up? I was like, sometimes, like, Eric, sometimes I just want to, like, scream and just say, motherfucker, did you not hear what I just said? Are you deaf? (laughs) Do the words that are coming out of my mouth mean something? (laughs) Sabrina. Yes. I I asked... um, uh, a barber, I said, listen, if if the state was to raise the minimum wage to this much, and they said it's going to it's going to go into effect next January, but they but they were going to give, but the government was going to give you subsidies to cover eighty five percent to hundred percent of your labor costs. Would you be okay with that? He was like, yeah, sure. I mean, we give subsidies to big business. We could give subsidies to small and, and small and mid-sized businesses so that we don't have to do the incremental thing of tick it up to the minimum, you know, tick up the minimum wage. You, you see what I'm saying? I mean, it doesn't have to be an incrementalism thing. You know, they could, they, the government could just we're going to give subsidies to cover, you know, 85% to 100% of your of your labor costs. But as you grow and you get bigger, that subsidy shrinks. Yeah, yeah I think sometimes people are just like I think sometimes people are just trolling sometimes when they say that. Like I'm like honestly like I just told you what to do. And people will be like, so we just do nothing? And I'm like, look, <laughs> if your idea of only, if your definition of doing something is only on the national level, then that's part of the problem. Mm-hmm. That's, that's part of the problem. Definitely. I, I, tell them, I tell them, look, if that's the route that you want to go, have at it. I'll be over here doing this, okay? As long as we stay out of each other's way, cool. 
if you can do because because I know Andrews um, Andre Stackhouse is doing that two pronged approach. He is going state by state with uh, single payer, but he's also like supporting um, um, the national joint. So he's trying to trying to uh, walls are closing in type of thing. You see what I'm saying? So look, if that's the way. I only had a problem. I only have a problem when people try to try to crap on um, the route that I think that we should go. If you don't agree with it, okay, fine. Then then don't don't do it. Do your national route. You know what I'm saying? But don't shit on the way on what I'm trying to do because I'm not shitting on the way of how you're trying to do it. I just disagree with it. You know, That's so right. I just say just leave them alone. You want you want to be national? Okay, go ahead. I'll be doing this over here. That's right. You can't. This is one of the problems I have noticed on the left is there's so much tribalism and on the right, they don't, they don't have it to this degree. Like they will come together. Even people that didn't like Trump in the beginning, at the end of the day, they came together for him. People on the right. On the left though, there's so much like tribalism. It's just like, Depending on who is leading this action, I don't want to be a part of it. Or <laughs> it's, it's not approved. Mm-hmm. No, I don't it's want to be a part stuff. of it. Like, yeah. what the? F- this is why the left doesn't get anywhere in this country. It's like, yeah, everybody came together to rally for Bernie Sanders, but once that ended, it was just like, okay, well, what do we do now? Like, there's just so many. Actually, no, I take that back. Not everybody came together for Bernie Sanders because some people went towards the Elizabeth Warren side. Warren, yeah. That's right. So it's just, to me, it's just, it's, I don't have time. Like, it's just so many ego and, you know, who who approved this? Who signed off on this? I'm like, what the fuck is this? Is this a corporation? Or is this a grassroots movement? Yeah. Yeah. Because... It- Oh, sorry. Go ahead. My bad. Oh, um, I, I was going to say, like, when I was going to say, especially with um, focus, focusing on local on the local level, the the cool thing, I think one of the best things you can do is really start to actually. Like build a real ecosystem locally. Um, because like I, I had like, I was thinking about running for office, but I don't know if that's really going to work now. Um, but I'm like, but I'm like, look, there has to be. It can't just be for you. It can't just be centered about you. So there has to be like some mm-hmm. type of, like I said, education plan or something that like that you bring people with you. You you. Mm-hmm. <sighs> you know. You you were in Florida, you said. Yeah. Were you the one? Yeah. Yeah. So now the the thing with Florida's ballot initiative thing, it's only to amend the state constitution. Like you can't pass laws and you can't veto laws, but it's also in case Sabi you didn't know. In case anyone didn't know, it has to be sixty percent to amend. Um, yeah. Using the ballot initiative process. However, yeah. I didn't. I think. I wonder if it's the same for if it's the if the state wants if the legislature wants to pass, uh, you know, wants to pass the voters to pass their initiative. But um, 
you know, uh, 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 there's, you, you know, like I said, you have, you, you got to use the tools that, that are at your disposal. Okay. Didn't, never said it was easy. I hope right. no one thinks I said, I'm thinking it's easy. You know what I mean? But, you know, like you can, you know what? You can, even if you wanted to, since you have the ability to, uh, to, to do that, you can even give yourself the right to pass laws through the initiative process also saying, you know, we're going to give ourselves the right to pass laws and veto and um, veto laws as well. Repeal laws as well. You know what I mean? That's that's more one up than than, let's say, Maine, Alaska, Idaho, Washington State, Utah and Wyoming has because they could only pass state law, which the government can repeal, but they can't amend their state constitution. And you guys will see that because I'm going through each state. So I just did Arizona. So every live stream, I'm going through a different state. That's a BI state. And I explain like how it works in that state and what passed and what didn't pass. And that's important for people to see. And um, Eric, we'll need to, at some point, we'll need to make sure we clip all those so that people can just go boom, just to that quick video and be like, oh, what did they say about Arizona BIs? Boom, there's that video. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that it's it's just really important because a lot of people just don't understand, especially if you don't live in a BI state, but even some of the people that live in BI states, like they're just like, I didn't realize this because they don't vote. And the thing is, mm-hmm. like, if you're not voting, you don't get a chance to vote for those questions. So my thing to people is even if you don't want to vote for any of the candidates that are running, if you're in a BI state, you should still show up and vote for those BI questions because that will affect you locally. So like, for example, the marijuana question, people came out hella support. (laughs) A lot of voters was like, I'm coming to vote for that at least. Mm -hmm. Even if you don't live in a BI state, your legislature still put things on the still puts amendments on the ballot for you to um, ratify. You see what I'm saying? That's right. And some even even put law on the ballot for voters to participate in to decide to ratify as well. I think it's difficult for people that live in uh, places like like D.C. because D.C. doesn't have that. But that's another reason to push for D.C. to have statehood. So that they can have representatives or something like, I mean, yeah. all they, the they decisions the are made in Congress. Yeah. Huh? They do have the ballot. They do have a ballot initiative process, though. But like yeah, said, but still, they have like, no representation. Yeah. It's just it's ridiculous. Go ahead, Marco, because I know you wanted to answer um, Roger's question. Yeah, yeah, Roger. Yeah, we um, we this is the second initiative we've gotten on the ballot. And uh, we won the first one, and we'll see about the next one. Yeah. What was the first one? The first one was universal preschool for all kids in the county. Nice. Oh, okay. So that that was the um that was a local ballot initiative. Yeah. Well, so it's a county initiative. So yeah, yeah, county. That's what I meant. Yeah. Say, yeah. Okay, that's cool. Yeah, do that too. It's not just state level ballot initiatives. It's local. There's a, that's another way to do it too is through the county. In fact, Ryan mentioned this when he was on that was um, Wisconsin did this. They did uh, some type of healthcare. I have to go back and check. I think it was like some type of aspect of single payer healthcare. And it was in a county that Trump won and they passed it. 
And this is why we keep saying like, you have to remove the policies from the politician and the political party. Because if you just give people the questions and say, do you want healthcare for everybody? More people are more likely to vote for that because it's not attached to a party. But once you put it through a politician and a party, now you got the tribalism and you have the political division. And if you're one of those people that's like, I'm going to vote for my party, no matter who the candidate is, that is not going to pass. That was the mistake that we made with Bernie Sanders. All of those policies, those were great policies, at least in my opinion. But once Bernie Sanders dropped out of the race, it just kind of... People are like, okay, what do we do now? You know, they're like, oh, well, the squad's there. They'll do it. They'll handle it. And they handle nothing. Meanwhile, people were passing these uh, policies on the local level. I totally agree, Savvy, because it's not about political parties. It's about seizing the means of production. Because political parties exist after you have power. Once you have power, then you can organize yourself into parties. You need to have power first. So like when we, when we got our ballot initiative passed and enacted, we seized the means of production for creating laws, for creating statutes, for creating policy. We seized the means of judicial law production and so we so so it's like it doesn't matter who voted for our ballot measure because our ballot measure was was not tied to a a particular party yep it's like focusing on national politics is putting the cart before the horse you have Mm -hmm. to have power locally before you can have power nationally. That's kind of why Justice Democrats didn't work out. Because mm-hmm. we have that power locally, we went straight for the national level. And and it's not going to happen top down. It's going to happen bottom up. That's right. It doesn't happen with grass tips. It starts with grassroots. Grassroots. <laughs> I like that. That's right. Um, Eric, what's up? If you had um, anything else to add, um, really, just um, like I said, the it's it's pretty much obvious at this point the local level is going to be the way to go. Um, yeah, it's just the fact, this fact that when people, if people do run, or people plan on running locally, like. I guess my thing would be like have at least have some type of education plan to at least like teach a lot of the students who are coming up because as y'all know in these K through twelve schools we really can't do much. These curriculums are too tight. And and yeah. I guess that'll be my I guess I guess that's it for me. Well said, Eric. Well said. We're going to go ahead and bring in um, Lance. Lance, you are the next caller, but go ahead, Roger. You're going to say. No, I just see the thing is. Um, I don't want people to because I'm, I'm beginning to see. P- 
people begin to go into cynicism and that's just a sign of that's another sign of how people cope with hopelessness you feel what i'm saying because okay we go this route they stop this here we go that route stop this here and then what happens is you know just like ralph nader was saying when he was getting interviewed then people just just you know like pretty much those shoes at the tv well no one's watching the tv anymore Right. Um, I just want to respond to something really quick in the chat. Um, Ghost Unit said, what is the railroad collecting money for? Um, so they have a GoFundMe. Go I'm going to put the link in the chat. They are trying to, I believe, from what I read on their website, it seems like they're trying to do some type of a wildcat strike. So they've already raised over $20,000. They're almost at their goal, but that's what they're trying to do. So they're really not... They're not giving up, guys. Like, they're still trying to push back against this. So, yeah, go ahead, Lance. Oh, yeah, because I actually wrote a couple things down. Um, the railroad third-party idea, What what's going on with that? Because I know that was mentioned by some of these third-party union guys because of the fact that they can't legally jump right into a wildcat strike because of the right. railroad workers. But uh, what about that third party thing? Is there any more on that? Or Well, I'm putting the link in the chat now. It says uh, GoFundMe.com, our struggle. I just put that there in the chat so you guys can read about that. And I'm going to try to see if I can bring them back on again to talk about this. The other thing, too, is it might be kind of hush-hush a little bit because yeah. they may not be able to reveal too much. Also... You know, those guys, and, and I said this before, like, absolutely wonderful about what's happening with Starbucks and Amazon. It's just a different profile. And this doesn't mean, yeah, Starbucks, they're a bunch of baristas, you know, to live at mom. Well, maybe, but good. That gives them a little more flexibility to say, screw you. We don't have to work here. We're going to college anyway. And with Amazon, it's in between where it's like you got people that are trying to pay rent in New York City. Maybe they don't have it as far as an overall profile of a younger person that maybe does but so this is wonderful. You know what I'm saying? I'm not just trying to just describe stuff. The railroad workers, man, they're just different. They're old school. And I don't think they're old school. Like they're going to get out baseball bats in one hand with a union card in the other, like some kind of old school thing from Jimmy Hoffa, the original days. They're smarter than that. But you know what I mean? No, they're, they're tried and true. They, they're not going to, they're going to be have strong willed and strong backbone, whatever they decide. They won't falter. And they're, the reason they're being cautious is because they have to legally. They can get their accounts froze. A lot of bad stuff can happen legally to them that can't happen to other workers at Wildcat. Um, but that's why I'm so, have so much faith in the idea and would totally in my entire sweet short life. Okay. I very, other than dabbled my toe in any kind of electoral politics, other than specific people I knew personally that I wanted to help out with a local office, but I'm all on board with it's a railroad third party union because they're just more well, you know, very immersed in how to organize and also to have the, um, you know, like just the, the will to do it if they decide to do it. They won't, they won't back, you know, it won't be something that they just, you know, cause these guys are professionals. You know, these guys are like skilled tradesmen. And again, nothing against a barista. That's hard work and it's stressful and it's busy and all that. But running trains, man, that's like real stuff. That's like, what's his name? Han Solo with the original Star Wars. You know, these guys are really, you know, highly, highly skilled. And so they're not going to just, uh, you know, it's not like they're going to go and work for Amazon warehouse as 
an, as an executive. You know, this is what they do. Anyway, I'll stop there for a second, but I'm really encouraged by that whole thing. And I got to try to get it, you know, find out what's going on locally with that, if there's anything. Because there isn't any with the Teamsters. There's a brand new Amazon, brand new, one of the biggest warehouse uh, centers or whatever it is. I don't know if it's a, a fulfillment center, but it's huge. And the local Teamsters don't want to know nothing. They're, they're not, they're not on board. We're trying to make them, you know, get organized with the local Amazon place, but. Well said, uh, Lance. Um, what's your take about what uh, Chris Hedges said about, we were talking about local level politics and Chris Hedges was like, we need to be organizing on the grassroots level locally. Well, you know, it's like, you know, I, I actually been talking about this thing, you know, and, and I get a chance to uh, kind of brag on myself. I'm not a Zen Buddhist in terms of being zero on the pride and uh, ego thing, right? Pride's one of the seven deadly sins. Maybe I'm a three or a four, I hope, but not a 10 or a nine or an eight. But, you know, this thing that I put together, this proposal, I'm tweaking it a little. It was, I mean, the lady tells me it was the best proposal she ever heard. Faye Williams, she's my guardian angel. She's wonderful. Um, but, like, the, and you know, and so I have to tweak it a little and put in information that I already knew I had to do. And so I had it pretty well thought through. And, you know, I guess I should start. I can teach people how to do this now. And also, I already know how to, like, market things. So, in other words, I'm going to do fundraisers for an offshoot thing that's related to it, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but anyway, it's got to be all local. I mean, and and but also, right, like we're talking about, it's throw everything at the – not throw everything at the wall, but I, I used to switch around the concept of think locally, act globally, Instead of think globally, act locally. Now they're both true. And what I meant was back in the eighties, you could see this is way before NAFTA. I was saying this literally in the eighties, folks, um, is the companies are internationalizing. There was already multinationals, but they're going on. They were already starting to get on steroids with that. Uh, and you know, it's like guys, we better com- uh, connect culturally, like with the anti-apartheid thing. That was people, entertainers, Stevie Wonder, et cetera. They wouldn't go to Sun City uh, in, and then perform. And it was forcing companies not to engage in South Africa economically. BDS, man, BDS, BDS. And those are things you can do locally. I can't boycott a store in California, but if it's a, if it's a Nestle corporation, a worldwide boycott worked against them. So things that can be done locally can be acted upon locally. Some of those things can connect and or connecting not just in terms of entertainers not playing in South Africa, but connecting with, uh, um, like, culturally, whether it's sports teams, whether it's artistically. You can do that stuff online now, you know, like, uh, let's have an art, let's have an art, uh, 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 um, you know, uh, group. You know, and I, I'm not always about art having to be political. Some artists I know are, they're almost fascist in terms of just being self-centered, but they're apolitical. But so what? I love Diego Rivera, and I love, you know, Political art is wonderful, too. You know, Guernica, I mean, everything Picasso did wasn't political. But, I mean, so if we do, we can connect globally and then still act locally. But, man, I, you know, anybody that wants to know how to start, and it's not going to be a worker co-op, which my original project was going to be a 501c3, not NFPC, not-for-profit corporation. And then it was going to be a worker's co-op with prisoners, as I was told you guys about, you know, hiring prisoners and, uh, you know, uh, Homeless and shel- and unsheltered. All she said was, 
uh, enlarge it to all marginalized people. And I mean, it's like there. I'm actually at a point once I get this tweak this proposal and she says, because she's already likes it. If Chris Hedges has a, uh, which I'm sure he does, an email account, I'm going to email him with uh, the executive summary. You know, you can't just send somebody, you know, 20, well, five pages of stuff. But, and then if he's interested, try to get him to be on the board. That would be a kind of a, you know, I, when I say feather in my cap, because it would further the cause, not because it would, you know, again, I don't want to sound egotistical, right? But so, I mean, this thing, you know, I don't know. I, I, yeah, you got to do stuff local. What I wanted, could I just then ask Roger on top of that and shut up for a minute? But speaking of Ralph Nader, um, now you guys both were talking about stuff in New York. But we don't have ballot initiative, but is it an amendment that people can vote for on the New York health thing? And there was another issue. I can't remember what it was. Two, there was two in New York state. Do we, ha- we don't, we have something like that or Roger that's directed towards you, bud. But you mentioned it too savvy about the healthcare law. The New York health so, act. Yeah. But there was also like not a referendum, but some kind of an amendment thing, Roger, that folks could vote on in New York. What was that about? Either about that or something else. So as far as where the uh, state is concerned, we're like the other 49 states. Like all states are are ballot initiative states. It's just that 23 of them allow citizens to place initiatives on the ballot. Oh. You understand? But all states, the legislature, the state legislature puts amendments on the ballot for the voters to vote on to ratify their initiative. But we can't put initiatives on the ballot. Now, I think New York City is a ballot initiative city because I think that's how they got ranked choice voting passed. Um, And that's true. And that's true of Portland as well. So like when we got our initiative on the ballot, the county commissioner was trying to do a means-tested version of our study on the ballot so like you can it's also like on a county level as well yeah yeah because suffolk county which is the county uh next to me suffolk just let you know suffolk county is freaking long if you picked up brooklyn queens and nassau county picked it up and moved it on to suffolk county it take up half of suffolk county but um that's where like the Hamptons and all that stuff is. Well, that's the, um, that's the thing is that yeah, that's really important. Is that's important to understand is that like sometimes you want to go for city, sometimes you want to go for county, yeah. sometimes you want to go for state, sometimes you want to go right. for yeah. So that's like super important to understand those differences, and that's different yes. in every place in the country. Um, on purpose, right? To keep the people fucked up, right? So that we can't just share information equally. Yeah, so Suffolk County, they passed, they have public financing of elections, and I believe they did it through a ballot measure. Yeah, huh. actually, no, they did do public financing of elections, and they did it through a ballot measure. We, we don't have that in Nassau, though. Well, but Roger, the other thing, too, speaking of Ralph Nader, Nyperk's still around. Do you guys, do you ever, you know, you said, you said, Nyperk? you said, not, you said, not. You mean NIPAN or NIPER? No, no, NIPER. Yeah, New York Public Interest, you know, Public Interest Research Group. Oh, is that that's a Ralph uh, Nader? He started Fifty One Pergs, Usperg, which is U.S. Isn't that like an environmental thing? 
Well, it's CalPERG, NIPERG. It's state legislative. Well, it tends to be environmental stuff, uh, you know, especially when I first got involved in the late, late, late 70s or, you know, in the 80s. But it's just it's, it's legislative stuff, you know, to anything that's involving the state legislature. So there's there's NIPERG, CalPERG, there's 50 PERGs plus us PERG in Washington. And, you know, they used to be actually fairly effective. I don't know if they're. I, I, I asked the um, the author of the New York Health Act on the Zoom about. So so he he was talking about oh because I said listen uh, Rivera is Senator Gustavo Rivera he, his district is the Bronx and I said look we did all of the things that we were expected to do okay uh, you we we got. Uh, 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 got rid of the Republicans in, in the state. Not got rid of them, but uh, we gave you. We got rid of Cuomo's um, 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 IDC Democrat, right? Yes, the IDC, I didn't, right? We got rid of the IDC, okay, and then and then uh, they had a majority in the Senate. The Democrats had a majority in the Senate, but they didn't have a um, supermajority. Only supermajority was in the Assembly, which is the lower chamber okay then we then you came up with you guys came up with some other excuse so we got rid of uh we oh yeah then then you guys got a super majority a veto proof majority in both chambers in 2018 and then uh no no in 2020 then we got rid of cuomo we did all these things okay now you're saying that you have to uh get a conference and, and sabrina what they call a conference is get senators to be champions of the bill just don't be a co-sponsor but actively be a champion of it and 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 talking about it whatever and i just say yo senator listen we would have had this thing passed already if we were a ballot initiative state you need to put you and your colleagues whatever needs to put an amendment before us for us to vote on well, to transform us into a ballot initiative state so yeah and, you know, oh. okay yeah, Roger, could I, could I jump to another note? You know, now what do you think about this, right? Because again, I, I, in my, like I said, in my decades of life, you know, I, I just never wanted to get involved with electoral politics. Like I said, I have, I've like personally known a local candidate, blah, blah, blah. All right, what about this idea? A coalition, right? And I'm thinking to myself, not, you know, you had the IDC. What if you had an IDC only it was, you know, a good faith coalition of now, Sabrina in uh, uh, Massachusetts, you have Baker, right, a Republican governor. Yeah, he's on his way out, though. He didn't uh, reseek election. Well, I mean, in New York, Massachusetts, I assume. I think Maryland, as corrupt as Maryland is, you know, so is New York. But you know, they're not going to govern like. Well, let's put it this way. Romney was governor of Massachusetts. Now he's senator of Utah. Well, he's going to have a different policy hat full of stuff he's going to f- push in as a senator, which is different than being a governor anyway. But you know what I mean? In Utah than he is when he was a governor of Massachusetts. You know what I mean? In other words, I think that the average, like, we have so many purple districts, like I was saying before, that they, they get a lot of Republicans, but they're not going to be the tinfoil. We have our Trumpers around, yes, in the really, really red district. But, you know, generally speaking, it's not Nebraska. It's not Oklahoma, which can get 
you know, honest to goodness, progressive, uh, like that Indian, you know, she's an indigenous person who, uh, I can almost remember her name in Kansas. So, I mean, you know, whatever. But New York, you know, it is different. What about a coalition, Roger, in New York? Cause you're in New York, savvy, you know, in Massachusetts, why not there too? But a coalition that isn't just, which is fine if it's working fam, all these, you know, parties I don't really like, but the individuals are great, you know, of people on the left. How about a coalition that involves good faith? independents, because there are several of them, like the guy who's a definite dyed in the wool, he's, his family has dyed in the wool for generations, Republican. But Rockefeller Republicans, he definitely is not like a Trumper. He definitely they vote against Trump. You can't vote. In, let's put it this way. The Republicans that get elected in most of the districts in my area, you can't be a Trumper and really get very far. You're going to have to vote against Trump a lot. They voted with Bush a lot. You know, but even that, they had to go against him by the end. So it's kind of purple. And so what about a coalition that doesn't just involve a bunch of parties on the left? Absolutely. I would prefer that. But, you know, a coalition that involves, you know, good faith Republicans and do an IDC and get six or seven seats in the in the in the in the New York State Senate and, and, and you know, and, and flip the switch on these people that are trying to. They got a supermajority, but it's so corrupt here. The Democrats aren't going to do anything more with the supermajority than when they, when, because I know a little bit about the history of New York State. I might not dabble in it, but I absorb it. You know, the Senate was, of course, for what, decades and decades, a supermajority of Republicans in the Senate, supermajority of Democrats in the Assembly. Now the Democrats have both. It ain't nothing changing. No more. What you're, I'm sorry, Lance, what you're asking for, that's the forward party. That's that's really what that no, is. No, 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 no. What I'm saying is, Sabby, in other words, I personally, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't think that the people that went from Obama to Sanders to Trump are going to go for the uh, the forward party. See, I'm a but far lefty. Them, no, 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 no. Some of them have, though. Well, I fought through them. Well, well, no, but wait what? Wait a minute. Well, let me go ahead. Let me I'm sorry. I actually had this conversation with Andrew Yang. Some of them have. This was the thing that he was trying to explain. Some of the people that voted for Obama twice and then turned around and voted for Trump, at least that first time. Some of those people have gone to the four party. Okay. Could I flesh this out a tiny bit? Because I really think I'm on to something. Let let me finish. Some of the people (laughs) that voted for, uh, Obama and Hillary Clinton, some of those people are now part of the four party. Some of the people that voted for Bush, but not Trump, are part of the four party. It's a a collective, it's like an umbrella of, of people. So what you were just talking about, that's the same thing that Andrew Yang was was explained. No, 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 no. Please, it, it really, really isn't anything like that. And here's why: the Democratic in a nutshell, the Democratic Party once upon a time. You know, you were talking about the parties in the DNA of of the GOP in this anthology book I read about. You know, different essays about democracy. The GOP is the party of commerce. You know, or at least they always have been. Now you got the corporate Dems too, but you know, and they always were. The Democrats are more like the liberal ideology, like Will Rogers said it in the 30s. I'm not a member of any organized party. 
I'm a Democrat. And so that's why the GOP, they had to have weird coalitions and stick together because within the Democratic Party, to not to oversimplify really, you had Southern unreconstructed racist leaders in the South. Not every person that was white in the South, but remember the Solid South was all Democratic. You could not get elected as a Republican in the South, but they were, they were conservative, right? And there was a lot of racists there. But they were populist, you know, and there was the lunch bucket, middle, upper Midwest, you know, all the way through to really to Massachusetts, all the way across really the country, the, the lunch bucket, the industrial, you know, upper Midwest and, and, and Eastern, you know, uh, you, you know, all that, you know, uh, Northeast. Then you had the coastal elite then as now. And it was a weird coalition within the Democratic Party. It, it took, so in other words, in Europe. I'm not suggesting that I'd be on the Marxist party. That's what I want to do. I put a bunch of Marxist things with a couple with the Venn diagram that, uh, that agrees with some of the conservative stuff, but not to water anything down. So in other words, it would be 75, 80% progressive and Venn diagram like mass incarceration, 15 minimum way stuff that uh, conservatives could agree with, but not couch out of that. Okay. In other words, like for instance, we don't, we're not going to have a parliamentary system. So don't, we're not going to have that. We're just not. We created it for Europe so they would have strong parties from all, all, all different persuasion. But in other words, the Marxist party does not kowtow or say, Oh gosh, we got to be like the, like the far right party. If that who's like Angela Merkel, she was not a wacko, but she was, I think, pretty far right in terms, and she was one of the strongest leaders, respected and all that stuff in terms of the, in terms of Europe. But what I'm saying is, so I want to be on the Marxist side. I don't want to come at it from watering anything down, Marxist per se, and, you know, maybe a little more heterodox than that. But but go with the strong progressive policies and say, gee, can other people work with us where they're going to run in a red district and they can get elected as a republic? So a coalition of very different parties that work together as opposed to we have to come up with the one kind of size-fits-all thing. Again, you know, that's, that's exactly. That's exactly what Andrew Yang said. That that's what I'm trying to explain to you. Yeah, but but I'm I'm coming. Let me let me finish. Yeah, yeah. I I interviewed him. This is exactly what he said. That if you run through the four party, and if you wanted to run with the progressive policy, like those type of policies, you could do that if that works for your district. That's exactly yeah. what that's exactly what he said. He said you could have a Republican, you could have a Democrat, yeah. you could have an independent, you could have a third party person, you could have a progressive, different people under that one umbrella as no. long as they are running on issues that work in their district. So no. if, if you are running in like a rural or red area, no, but you still wanted to run for you still wanted the platform like universal health care and that kind of thing. You could no. still do that through the four party. The forward party does not have certain policies as their platform. It is supposed to be a caucus where people from different parties go up under one umbrella and they run on the policies that work for their district. No, that's just, no, I, that's no. just what you described. No, 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 no. I'm talking about having something that is a, no, no, no. In other words, if I'm going to, if, if the people that I'm going to say I'm going to work with on the concern, on the Republican side or conservative side, I'm going to say, no, we're not going to support your, you know, like being against, if you're going to run strong, you know, like whatever you vote. In other words, it's a coalition of different parties. You see what I mean? So they don't have to, in other words, be under any one banner. They're going to have their GOP flag. 
flag. But it's like, look, if you're going to be strong on anti-abortion, if you're going to run on uh, no universal health care, screw you, we can't work with you. But if your main topics are stronger on the things that we can overlap on, and okay, I'm not going to worry about how you vote on certain things. So, no, I, I totally agree with what you're saying, and I do not want what Andrew Yang has. My vision is much more, it's really focused and coalesced, but in other words, what I'm suggesting is like Fred Hampton, for instance, even the people he worked with in working class situations, some of those white folks, and, and you know, you corrected me and schooled me, they had to be former fascists, they had to be former assholes, they had to be at least reformed, you know, and reforming, but that doesn't mean right. that they weren't, that doesn't mean that they weren't going to maybe, you know, be Republicans or go off and do I something think- conservative, and, and, and what I mean, though, is just like the Democratic Party, it's like, it's not like I'm saying, to, oh, we have to be like, and, and Kate can do something that appeases the, the Southern unreconstructed races, or that appeases the pinhead elites in the East Coast, or that, you know, oh, Joe Lunchbucket, who doesn't, you know, whatever. Well, no, but you're going to have overlapping policies. The Democratic Party was a bizarre party for a while. He's not, he's not oh, saying, oh. he's not saying, again, he didn't say, like, look, I don't, I'm not a part of four party. It's not for me, but he's not saying that you have to flip what you are. What he's saying is they are trying to run a coalition of people that are running on the issues that work for their district, what their constituents want. They'll all be part of the forward party, though, right? They'll all be part of the fourth. They'll all be part of the forward party flag, though, right? There is no flag. It's not a party. It's a caucus. Like, that's what I'm explaining. Like, it would be best if you watch that interview because we went through all of this. And this this is one of the criticisms that I gave to Andrew Yang. And I said that, listen, if you say you are a party, people are going to ask, what are your policies? So when you come back and say, well, four party doesn't have set policies per se, because it's up to the candidate that's running and those are the policies that they pick that throws people off. If you are actually a caucus, then it should be called a caucus. But the reason why it's not is because in certain states, in order to get on the ballot, you have to be called a party. That's why it is the forward party. So I recommend watching that interview because I explained to him very clearly that I'm one that's big on policies And if you tell people you have this party and you don't have policies associated with the party, people are going to think it is a grift. I said that exactly to him and he got defensive. Well, here's the thing, Savvy, and maybe this will explain once and for all, because then you got to move on one way or the other, whether I make myself. okay. so what I'm talking about, like when I mentioned to Roger, right? Exactly what I want to do. It's patterned after Ralph Nader and Nyberg. So no, 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 no. If it's universal health care, for instance, right? In other words, it'll be kind of, let's say, it's not a, it's not, I don't want to do a party either or a think tank. I want to do tank. But in other words, it's going to be this agenda. This is the agenda. Universal health care, absolutely. A right anti-abortion, because there's plenty of libertarian kind of conservative-ish that are libertarian-minded who see what the hell's going on with the Christian fascists. So, hey, you don't want to be, you don't want to, you don't want to, you don't want to support our our caucus, which is going to be strongly pro-abortion and strongly universal health care, absolutely strongly a $20, the hell with 15 $20 minimum wage, pegged to cost of living increases. And this is the list of the things that we're going to fight for. And if you don't like it, 
fine. If you can fight, so well, it'll be different coalitions for different issues. No, I don't want, I don't want to have anything to do with people that are going to go again, just because we can have some flip floppy where it's right wing stuff and left wing stuff. I think that's bullshit. I think Andrew Yang, sorry, Andrew, I don't think that's going to work, first of all. And if it does, I don't think it would be good for the country. So, no, I want, I want a pretty strong left wing agenda. But there could be a couple things just to entice folk that could be like eminent domain. That's a left wing thing. Uh, some of the regulations at like some of the things that over regulating in California is how well meaning progressive destroyed California. So when you say regulation, no, not like a libertarian free market, uh, you know, fuck that. So, so but I mean, and, get, uh, environmental sorry, stuff. I just, I just want to make, make sure I'm clear here. You're trying to get people to run. As left-wing candidates, no. Even well, what are you trying? I'm confused. What are you trying to get people to do? To tell you the honest truth, the more I think about it, it's kind of what Ralph Nader started. Now it won't be Nyper because maybe those guys are just like they have their own system. I who where am I going? They're they, they're they're already a structure. But to have you know like an agenda of. Of, of stuff that, 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 that a bunch of people that sit around and have meetings that, yeah, this would be good to do. Oh, well, who can we get? Oh, there's, look at this person at working families. Oh, look at this uh, Republican in a bright red district. So we can't really get a, not that I want working families. I think they're corrupted. I think the Green Party is afraid of something to do, blah, 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 whatever. DSA. Okay. I got my problem. I don't care. I'd vote for DSA in a heartbeat or green. You I'm, know, I'm, it, I'm, but, I'm, I'm sorry, Lance. But, but, just, but I'm just, saying just really to be clear. It would be agenda driven and it wouldn't be some kind of like, oh, if you want to be anti-abortion and you want to be anti-universal health care. Oh, we're, we love you because you're going to be part of this weird coalition. No, 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 no. That's what the GOP did. What I'm saying is what the old fashioned Democratic Party did. They didn't agree the populist South Democratic kind of I'm racist sorry. folks and the middle Lance, class. Lance, Lance, they, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Demo- you're, why you're, they were, Lance, I'm sorry. I, I, there's, there's a long line of callers. I'm not trying to okay. be rude, but I just want you to answer very quickly. What exactly are you asking people to do? Well, to come up with an agenda at the state and, of course, local level, too. In other words, even locally. There are so many things that really and do, well. And do what? And then where do they go from there? That's that's what I'm trying to get to. After they come up with an agenda, where do they go from there? Uh, what we 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 decide that we're we're going to Lance. I could you asked me a question. See, this is what I'm sorry. I just I, I want to make sure we get to the other people. But the thing okay. is, I think Lance, that's the thing. Is like. We've come up with agendas multiple times. You see well, what I'm saying? The progressive movement came up with an agenda. Andrew no, no, Yang came up with an agenda. Like everybody's coming up with agendas. My question is, what is the step after that? Well, just so that we said, do you do what it takes to? And you say that look, this uh, this uh, okay, this rainbow agenda coalition, whatever you want to call it, of and this is our agenda items. And if you don't do what we want, you won't get elected. In other words, it's just like well, people if on the you right. Have an agenda, you implement the agenda. 
Well, what I mean, what I'm, well, here's what I mean. You know what I mean? We start with that 70% and 80% of people that agree on stuff. Take those, take the low hanging fruit. You start with those. Those things are, they're, they tend to be populist agenda items. And you, and if I, I think you could do it like a think tank that, that does, that, that forces the issue on candidates. I, I think it could work. Liz, can I ask, answer your question real quick? Cause yeah, yeah. That, that was that was a long question that you gave me. Um, all right, listen, here's the thing. This is what my plan is, at least for New York State. I'll make it quick because I know you got other people savvy. I want to try to get Albany to um, um, I'm looking for a state new state agency. Call it the Cooperative Business Administration to provide a pathway for co-ops to grow, to start, grow, proliferate. Form partnerships with with other cooperatives to form supply chains, and then box out corporations, and then replace them. Okay, that's what I'm looking at. I'm not really looking at. That's what I want from the government right now. Because once you start building this this these cooperatives throughout the state, then we replace corporate as the main financiers. And since cooperative is more grassroots and it's more closer to the people, then we take over Albany and we tell them what our agenda is and what we expect them to do. You see what I'm saying? So that's what my long-term plan is. That's the only way I see, that's the only way I see us becoming a ballot initiative state because we have to become the main financiers of these politicians, just like the unions were in their in their heyday. And I agree way to with do you, that, Roger, and that is so important to understand. Politicians yeah. are, at, are the employees of the people who control the means of production. The capitalist class controls the means of production, and they use the means of production to buy the, the politicians. The politicians work for the oligarchy. If we yeah, yeah. take power away from the oligarchy, we can get our own politicians in there, like like Shama Sawan. Yes, yes, but, 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 but yeah, but that's why seizing the government. Absolutely, but that's again why this is what I'm talking about. It's you know okay, fine. That's why the worker co-op thing that I have these folks. In other words, it's like if you write an article, it might be really brilliant and really clever and really logical, but. This has kind of been peer reviewed. She's helped me get grants, all that jazz. And I'm not saying that, oh, wow, you know, aren't I great? But, you know, the thing really worked. And it was the first proposal I ever really put together professionally, all that stuff. So, I mean, I'm really putting together this, this cafe that's going to, you know, hire prisoners and all that stuff. So it's not like, you know, this other thing that I have as an idea, I just see the Federalist Society on the national level, but that could be done locally or these groups. And I know there's no billionaire to come in like to AstroTurf, like a left wing agenda group. But these these groups form locally, and all of a sudden, there comes the Koch brothers with billions of dollars. That might not be there on the second phase. But I think like a NIPER, here's a list of laws in New York State that we think are, you know, they might be progressive, but they might be just neutral. Here's a list of stuff. Who can we get that will do it? Oh, working families here, Republican guy over here. We got to do a Zoom But I want it to be agenda-driven and not all over the place like we're going to be a right-wing, left-wing centrist like Andrew Yang. Okay. I want to make sure I get to the other callers, Lance. Thank you so much. Thank you for letting me go on. Thank you. All righty. Michael, how are you doing? 
I'm good, Sabby. How are you? I'm good. <laughs> uh, yeah, that was a that was a that was a thing. Um, I uh, so I was listening to what was going on, and this is like this is really exciting for me because this is exactly what I wrote my uh, my thesis about. It was actually like literally this happening. So uh, I. I I kind of wanted to talk about some of the ideas I had for when I thought this might happen. Um, Cause basically when I just a little bit of background, when I was writing my, my, my paper about sort of the, the crisis of Western democracy, I was saying, well, basically none of our systems are really democratic right now anyway. And I was writing it from a Canadian perspective. And I was saying like, it's pretty obvious that we don't have any sovereignty left that we basically operate as a part of this system. And it's also pretty obvious that we're coming to a head with both Russia and China and that when that happens, that like the military and security state is going to go crazy because it's going to cause all kinds of economic and political problems and people aren't going to like it. And there's going to be resistance. And so they're going to double down the police state and surveillance and all that stuff. And so, uh, so all that happened and my, uh, what I was thinking about for, when that was going to happen uh, was, was, well, like, how do we address the situation? And um, I know you guys talked to Luna Oi from Vietnam, Professor Luna Oi. I know she was on, like, the second um, workers' panel. I, I'm not sure if you were on the panel with her, though. Uh, Nick talked to her. Okay, yeah. So um, Vietnam has this really fascinating system that I think is – maybe the best in the world. And I've written, most of my paper was kind of about how we could adapt its system to our systems, because I think it's really kind of brilliant. Um, the thing that is maybe the best about it is kind of the, the, like the problem that I see around all of us, and it was a problem that you guys, people on your panel were talking about, is just uh, that there's no real way to build community. Like we need bottom up power and we need people to sort of, like we need, we need a powerful organization, right? But like getting everyone under one ideological banner is always the problem. So the way Vietnam solves this problem is that there, there's a whole fifth of their government, which is organized around the Fatherland Front. And what the Fatherland Front is, is it's a, a type of parallel legislature. And it isn't populated by politicians, okay? It's only made up of, uh, of, of groups, uh, stakeholder groups in, in Vietnamese society, things like unions, uh, religious organizations, teachers groups, social groups. They call them social and political organizations. It also includes like the military and that kind of stuff. So basically, if you're part of Vietnamese society, you're part of the, the fatherland front through one of these groups, okay? And so what that means is that, say for example, um, there's a law that's passed that, that people don't like about, that the people aren't happy with some specific element of it, right? Uh, presumably that affects one group more than another. Let's say it is something that affects religious groups or something like that. So uh, the religious, you know, per, the, they'll get together with their parish and they'll say, well, actually, we're kind of unhappy about this and, you know, have the group discussion. And well, actually, it all we're all kind of unhappy about this. So let's talk to our, our, our associated people sort of in our, the other religious groups within the Fatherland Front. And then we try and form a consensus on that. And then if they manage to like, okay, there's enough energy behind this that we could take this to other groups, then they take it to the other groups in the fatherland front. Again, these are like unions and, uh, you know, 
social and political groups and what they so this they're able to gather not only consensus between these groups which none of which are political parties right these are all like organizations of people just normal people living their lives right so they form consensus among these and they there's a couple of things they do this is a mass mobilization structure right it's built basically to create rallies and to like gather consensus from different groups of the population in order to create an action right like an actual protest or an actual demonstration or like an actual proposal which they put through their um their parallel legislature right because the fatherland front all of these groups have their own legislature which is separate and apart from the political legislature that we're more familiar with um and so it, it operates separately they can bring their own proposals to that and then they can um individual people can bring laws to the vietnamese parliament or more likely and probably more effectively they can have something brought through these groups and so it's it's just kind of a brilliant system not only of providing an engine for mass mobilization and actually like creating change like um it's also really brilliant in the fact that it kind of creates this what what i call the socialism of life in that people in these little organizations that make up the fatherland front uh they're not um uh, the, the organizations govern themselves right and they send up their own representatives to the fatherland front as they see fit right so there's no like one body politic that actually unifies all these groups they're allowed to organize themselves how they want send up who they send up who they want and like even the organizations themselves might be differentially relevant in different areas like in a in a local city you might have i don't know um a couple labor groups that are relevant and a bowling league or something probably not a bowling league but let's say there was um those would be the relevant groups you would organize the fatherland front chapter there around because they're the groups that already exist that's kind of the great thing about this model is it doesn't require you to recreate the wheel it doesn't require you to create this uniparty that everyone is supposed to be on board with it actually does the opposite it says actually everyone you can still be part of your all your groups and that's good and you should invest in them and then you have an organizational structure that brings them together to do things that they all agree on and that turns out to be really productive and i guess the other thing is another fifth of their government just to address like the uh enthusiasm we have about co-ops and all that stuff and which I entirely agree about another fifth of the Vietnamese government is just labor organizing like it's a mm -hmm. there's a federal structure for a, like a federal union system that's enshrined in the constitution and so the federal union organization distributes resources and, and provides support to um local regional unions or regional union organizations, which then support local unions. And they have like a whole system, like their own uh, media networks and everything that just talk about labor issues. And there's just a lot of, like it's a fifth of the government, right? So they, they, they also, like I said, they're part of the fatherland front so they can bring legislation. And they also have all this, you know, all the powers within the union system. And that's just, it's very important because it gives the, the genius of the system. And this is where I'll stop talking. It's just that it has a lot of different ways for people to participate democratically that aren't just reduced to voting, right? You're participating in your, in your union, in your local social political organizations, in the Fatherland Front, 
in protests and, and all this kind of stuff. And it's all part of it, right? And I just think that would be something that would be amazing because like we, there's a lot of people that are very unhappy with stuff, but I don't see us being able to get everyone together under a single party. I just don't see that happening. We're in the same situation in Canada as you are there. Like we just can't, for a variety of reasons, we can't bring that under one banner. So don't even try, right? Just think about it as a, as a structural problem. Like that's how they got around this. Um, I guess the other thing to I say think, is that in, yeah, go ahead. I think there's a lot that we can learn from Vietnam. Well, I think there's a lot to be learned. Um, I know um, one of my coworkers actually went to Vietnam for a field seminar for like a week, actually twice. He did that twice. And uh, he came back with just like a wealth of information. And he was just like, wow, there's so much we could be doing here that we're not. So yeah. I think there's a lot to be learned there, you know? Absolutely. Um, I think it is. We'd like to have sort of... Lena Oy back on. <laughs> would like to have her back on yeah she was she's awesome you guys if you're not uh following her definitely follow her on youtube no she really is and like i've learned a lot about the the vietnamese just culturally from watching her um Mm -hmm. and uh (laughs) i remember like during my early phase where i was uh just learning about this kind of stuff i i I made them the, the comment of like well i think you know vietnam's a lot more democratic than canada not realizing that Canada was kind of a joke democratically to everyone else in the world. And so they're like, what do you mean by that? And like, oh, I meant it as a, as a compliment. And they're like, oh, okay, thanks, I, I guess. <laughs> um, but yeah, just one other note, like Vietnam also proves something else, which is that uh, Vietnam does have a competitive party system and it's just fine without it because I mean, you could probably identify with this, like the party system doesn't really seem to accomplish very much. It just sort of allows another party, another person to say, well, they did all the bad things, so you should vote for us. But then basically the same thing happens every election cycle. So in Vietnam, they don't have that. Like the Communist Party is the governing party. But the way that it works is that if you're interested in government policy, you go into the Communist Party and there's like a really like, all the rigorous policy debate happens within the Communist Party. And so there's always kind of responsibility to the party if things go well or they don't. And if you look um, over their history, like there's this thing called the Doi Moi Initiative where they basically went hard, not communism after things weren't working out really well because of a whole bunch of international trade restrictions and that kind of stuff and some other internal problems. But the point is, they actually are really flexible within the communist party. Like they adopted international financial mechanisms and, and like opened themselves up to investors and did a lot of stuff that even people in Vietnam were like, is this neoliberalism? Like, we don't not sure if we like this, but we had to, you know, they had to do it for their situations, like make things work. They, they, and like, I assure you they're communists. <laughs> they, they really are, but they have, the maturity to have other ideological factions within their party and to debate about policy without it being about sides. Like I just don't, they don't, because mm. they don't have competitive parties, they don't have to do that. And like secondary parties serve kind of the function of highlighting 
regional problems or issues like mostly the other parties will be a regional candidate they'll say like well, actually in this region we need something a bit more like this and they'll be represented in the parliament and sort of act to do sort of amendments and that kind of stuff that makes sense yeah that makes sense um again i think like when we talk about okay obviously like there are a lot of a, a lot of countries but I do feel like one of the countries that is ignored, I think I've mentioned this to you guys before, there are certain countries I feel like are ignored, kind of, mm. in mainstream media at least. I feel like Vietnam is one of them. Oh, absolutely. And I feel like Haiti, I, I told you guys before about Haiti, like how I feel like Haiti is vilified. And the only time we hear about Haiti and mainstream media is if they have another earthquake or some shit. But it's just like, I feel like Vietnam is another one of those countries that's kind of ignored by mainstream media. Um, I want to bring case study in case. You just have to. Hey, Sabby, what's going on? How are you doing? Hey, what's up? Nothing much. I'm sorry. I didn't. I, I'm definitely going to go back and watch the Chris Hedges interview. I was at work, but I love the fact that you all are here organizing and talking about different actions that we can do for change. Uh, so uh, I want to give a special shout out to my man, Marco who he's helping me out um, as far as giving me advice on the web technical side of the mutual aid political party website we're working on. So much love to you, Marco. And thanks for having me on Savvy. Yeah. In case I just want to say, I loved your clip with, um, I don't know. I show so many um, case clips. Sometimes I forget like which one, but the one I showed tonight, which was, um, the one from Fox News mm-hmm. when they were talking about the 1.66 trillion budget. Oh yeah, yeah. Not- they said it was a 4,000 page uh, document, mm-hmm. and I was like, "There's no way they read all that." Because that came and, out- and they said that. That's the sad part that I I, I, put, I think I, I put it I documented it in the text that even the they were joking around like, "Oh yeah, these politicians are not even going to read the bill." But they're saying it in a different context that I would say it. I would be a little bit more angry, like the man. Hey, we need to have them on the show and ask them why do they vote for bills that they don't read? You know, even when they do, that's read a good it, it point. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say, um, <laughs> even when they do read it, it's not of the hugest value. Like I remember. Um, my like one of my political awakening moments was talking to my local representative from the new democratic party about uh, a piece of censorship legislation that was going to the house in canada right and i have some legal expertise so and it also wasn't a very complicated bill they just like took out one part that basically granted like legal protection and so um sorry that's it's a little confusing. Um, anyway, so they, they, they were just taking out this one part that uh, granted legal protections. And so it really wasn't difficult to understand. And there were a bunch of Canadian legal experts that were saying, this is bad for very obvious reasons. And uh, so I, I emailed my representative and like copied a bunch of people on it and said, like, this is clearly bad because you're taking out this provision that grants this legal exception. And it's pretty obvious, right? And here's, and I linked to like, uh, this, this legal scholar that was like, here's why this is bad and all this stuff, right? And, uh, you know, they, they emailed me back and they just, it, it was just kind of amazing because it was so clear. Like you really, it was, they took out a provision, the provision did this, but they still just lied about it. They just said, you know, they just did all this mealy mouth stuff about it. And 
it was all lies. Like none of it made any sense at all. But it was just it made me realize like, wow, this is the point we're at with our government where they just they just lie straight to your face because they don't give a fuck because there's nothing you can do about it. And yeah, that's where we are. Well, thank you they so much, feel... Michael. Um, I just want to make sure I'm going to go ahead to. Um, yeah. OK. Noel. Noel's been waiting. Oh, God. Noel, I know you've been waiting a long time. So patiently. You are on the mic. Just have to hit unmute. Good evening. Or should I say good night? Good, <laughs> good morning. Listen, I, you know what? I really enjoyed hearing the other people comment. And it, it always gives me um, a great incentive to think things through. Um, as I was listening, um, especially to Lance, it just occurs to me that in this late stage of capitalism where we are, where everything is predatory, the we know that all power resides with the people. But the real hat trick here is how to organize the people to mobilize. I mean, we talked about the ballot of initiative states and things of this nature, how to um do things on the local level that is city, state, county, state level up to, because when we get to the national level, it is just too complicated. But as I listen to the various callers, I'm like, how do you tap that power that resides with the majority and organize it in such a way that you can mobilize without regard to whether it is a ballot initiative or something else or a candidate you want to run because our system is so um, programmed, you know, for the two party thing in support of the elite. And I'm just like, as I was sitting thinking, I'm like, I wouldn't know you know, how to begin to open the discourse with my regular everyday people to build that consensus around a set of ideas that would translate into some type of mobilization. And I think the system as it is works in a way, you know, as it attempts to support itself, the infrastructure of our system is designed to defeat that. And I just kept thinking over and over again, a part of the big problem we're seeing in this late stage um, capitalism where we are, where we're leaning towards a type of neoliberalism, which is a type of fascism and this, that, and a third. One of the biggest problems that is haunting us is a lack of accountability at every level. And, you know, we depended on in the earlier years of this nation's history, we depended on the um, journalist community as the um, wing, the fourth estate that will literally help us as the masses to understand what the elite were doing and bring them into account. And, you know, Chris Hedges talks a lot about, you know, the turn of the last century when we had FDR and there were a multiplicity of forces that pushed FDR in that direction. And that does not exist within our context today. 
And so we're, while we at the grassroots level are busy trying to reorganize and reconfigure, the elites have calcified all the power, all the real power at the top, and it's aligned with, you know, money. So I, I, I just sometimes, and I know um, Roger mentioned, you know, not giving in to cynicism, but when I assess the task at hand, you know, if we're to build incrementally and, and absolutely locally is the only way forward because trying to impact that national thing just is too bombarded with calcified power and money. But when I think about doing things locally, it would take us two centuries to get to the point where we could have a, a, a huge impact to turn this nation around. And I think a part of the um, problem is, go ahead. Oh, sorry, my, sorry. my bad. Go ahead, Roger. Oh, go ahead, Roger. Myself echoing. Um, I think part of it is um, starting oh, no, mutual aid is a good way. Hold on. Uh, I'm sorry, we we had lost your. I don't know, it's the app. Okay, Noel, just stay mute Here. for a second while Roger speaks, because I think you have an echo. Can you just mute yourself for a second? Yes. Okay. Okay, go ahead, Roger. Um, I think mutual aid is very good because it builds relationships. Um, a person remembers you when you do something for them, and then you come back later to say, "Hey, um, I need your help. Well, what what do you need?" Well, we want to try to pass this ballot initiative to do this, this, that, and this. So that was like based on a previous relationship of you already helping them doing mutual aid. Now, I don't know how anybody, else, you know, like I don't know how many people here live in snow states, but I know I live in. Yeah, exactly. So, so when you shovel snow. How do you shovel it? Or do you shovel it? I do shovel it, Roger. Uh-huh. I am a strong woman. <laughs> okay. No, um, how do you, how do you shovel? So I use my knee. I have to use my legs. So I, I take the shovel, I, I bend down, and I lift up with my legs, and then I toss the snow. Otherwise, okay. you'll, my back so, will hurt. Yeah. So when I when I see that there's like I don't know 18 inches or whatever we're about to get hit with that soon anyway. But when I see that there's a whole bunch of snow that that I have to tackle, I don't look at it. I just look at my feet and I look at what's right in front of me. And I always make sure not to look up. And I just take a little bit off the top, take another layer off, take another layer off, then I hit the concrete and I keep repeating it. And I always try not to look up. Okay. Um, after a while, I look up and I realize, oh, shoot, I didn't realize I shoveled all of this. But when I take a look at it over the landscape, I'm like, oh, my God, I got to shovel all of that. Man, that is too tiring. I'm not doing, oh, this is, ugh, I don't want to do this. This is just too much. But if I just look at my feet and look what's right in front of me, Take a little bit off the top, take a little bit off the top or more, boom, boom, about maybe three off the tops before I hit the concrete. 
you know, kind of like rinse, repeat, rinse, repeat, keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it, keep doing it. Because one day you're going to look up and you're going to realize, oh, that's how far I've gotten. You see what I'm saying? So that's how I, I tackle these things. You know, yeah, if you look at the whole thing, you're going to be like, you're going to get demoralized. Then you're going to delve into cynicism. Then you're going to be like, yeah, fine. It might not happen in your lifetime, but at the same time, you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, because because the lockdowns from COVID, it turned the whole world upside down. And all of a sudden, workers are finding leverage in the workplace. Now, you got Mayor Eric Adams, who's crying about, please come back to New York City so we can have, you know what I'm saying? Like, because we could afford our essential workers. Look, Long Islanders are not trying to come back. I made more, you know, Long Islanders are like, I made more money. I make more money working remotely. You see what I'm saying? And now they get to use their leverage to demand more. That happened as an act of, uh, you could say God, but it was really, <laughs> it was really the uh, lab leak and all that different type of stuff. And, and man playing around with a whole bunch of different viruses and it got out, whatever the case is. You seem like, you yeah. know, I'm just saying you got to keep doing what you're doing and be it's and put yourself make yourself prepared for when stuff does go down cuz you don't know when it's going to go down you see what i'm saying you just put your ducks in the right order put your chess pieces in the right order because so this way you're like oh shoot i'm already ready so that's how i that's how i tackle it that's really that's really wise roger because you know i was like something my therapist taught me once cuz like i i struggle with a lot of anxiety and my therapist taught me that, like, um, she says that, like, think about being a downhill skier. Like, when you're skiing, I've never gone skiing because I'm not rich enough, you know? <laughs> but, like, my therapist was talking about how, like, if you're skiing, you can't, when you're going really fast down the, the mountain, you can't look at the trees. Because if you look at the trees, you're going to go into the tree and die. You have to look at the path that will get you safely through the terrain of of things that will kill you and like that's like so important that's so important about like apathy and and depression is like you can't focus on 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 the, those things you have to focus on the creative power focus on building and and that's what i'm hearing from you roger so thank yeah, you so much focus on what you can change and it you know and then you connect with others and you know yeah, it'll proliferate it's, yeah, it's kind of like it kind of reminds me when like um is a good example of this. It's like you go through 12 years of mandatory education, right? K through 12 or whatever. And then it's like you decide whether or not you're going to go to college. And so you go to undergrad and it's like you get four years of that. And then you think about the people who they want to be a doctor. Well, then that's like eight more years or like four more years. Probably like eight more years. Anyway, that was a similar thing. It was like, if you want to get to that goal, you have to, you, you can't look at it that way. If you look at it as though, oh my God, I got to do all of this and this and then that, you're going to get easily discouraged. And I think like, that's the difference. I mean, like I, I, for example, like I went to grad school, so I have a master's, like I could have easily said in undergrad, like, oh my God, I don't want to do four years and then another two years. 
you know what I mean? Like you can't look at it that way. You just got to look at like what's right in front of you at that point in time. And then you, you get through and you push through it. But in terms of like the local level, like organizing on the local level, I don't know what state you're in, Noel, but I know like I'm in a ballot initiative state. These things are done all the time here. Like in Massachusetts, it's just common practice. It's not even like a second thought. Like people are just like, hey, we want to get this passed. Let's do a ballot initiative. Like, and yes, it takes work and it takes organizing. Absolutely. But I feel like people basically tell themselves, you know, we may, we, we may do the work. This may or may not pass. But either way, we won't know if we don't try. And even if it doesn't pass, we can come back again and try to get it again. An example, the millionaire tax is a perfect example of that. It passed this time. This isn't the first time. The first time it didn't pass. So you come back and you do it again. I understand um, everything that everyone is saying in terms of, you know, looking, doing what you can do while you can and eating the elephant one bite at a time and not being overwhelmed by the fact that it's an elephant. I guess what I was saying in the um, large part is with respect to where we are as a nation and given the fact that um, acting locally or moving forward from the local grassroots, I was just suggesting that based on where we are in this nation's decline and where we are globally, I don't believe that we will be able to organize ourselves out of this. I think the process that it takes to organize locally and that momentum rises up, I think we're past the place where we will be able to turn this thing around because what we're really looking at is a slow progression towards trying to wrest back the power in this structure as it has been organized. But I think it's really calcified too heavy at the top. And what I was suggesting is with the loss of the media as a mechanism to hold the government structures into account, yeah, we can organize grassroots and we can start trying to mobilize on those levels. But I really think what I was just trying to say is we're too far gone and I don't think we'll be able to pull it back. But that is the only recourse that we have available. And the other thing is, you know, when you are a poor person, which I am, you there are so many things in place to nullify and mute your voice. And just like one of the other callers was saying, um, you know, they lie straight to your face. You know, I've been in this situation where I've been the victim of a fraud and I've been fighting the last seven going on eight years just to be heard. I've written my mayor. I've wrote the mayor before him and people just simply ignore you. And so attempting to organize, you know, around that issue or attempting to get people to um, pay attention and realize that what has happened to me could happen to them. You're so busy trying to survive that we don't have that additional space and energy and resources, resources. to organize. 
I get but it. But moving on to the other well, the I other just, topic, if well, I can. I, be- I want to say something really quick. Um, uh-huh. I think in reference to like capitalism, even Professor Wolf told me this himself. We will never get back to where we were before. So in reference to like you saying like we're too far gone, like 100%, like we will never get back to the country that we were in reference to capitalism like 20 years ago. We're we're past, you're right, we are past that. And I think the pandemic, you know, made that worse and really opened a lot of people's eyes, to be honest with you. So I, I hope people do understand that in reference to capitalism, we are not going to get back to where we were like 20 years ago. It's just, it's too much has happened economically. That being said, there are a lot of forces that are against us, mainly their corporate forces that are against us. But I will say, I actually have been noticing a change even in mainstream media, because it's gotten to the point now where it's like a lot of people have zero fucks to give and the curtain's been pulled back. And I, I got to commend like people like Matt Taibbi and um, all of them that pulled these Twitter files because it's all out there now. It's all out there. You can't even the statement the FBI gave it like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. The information is all out there. So it's like, Now you even have mainstream media calling for, you know, the freedom of Julian Assange, calling for the U.S. government to say we need to free Julian. Even mainstream media is doing that now because they know what is going to happen, because if they if they put away, if they if they decide if Julian Assange is brought back to the U.S. and they decide to put Julian Assange away for good, that is going to affect not just independent media. That's going to affect them too, corporate media too, because all it takes is for you as a journalist to say the wrong thing. And then you're like, you're screwed. That's it. You're done. So I think even they are starting to realize that now. But one thing I will say in reference to organizing, I totally understand like, Noel, like I've been poor. I totally get it. I, I know what it's like, but that is where our allies who do have these resources This is where they come in and help lift those people up. And you do have Mm -hmm. some allies that are doing that. You have people like Chris Hedges. Not everybody's teaching at prisons and helping prisoners like get their degrees and things like that. You have someone like him. You have someone like Cornell West. You have someone like Cooperation Jackson who was doing just that. You have people like Rome who's doing tour for the poor, who's helping those people like I don't see the U.S. government helping people in Flint. I don't see the U.S. government helping people in Jackson, Mississippi. Rome is doing those things. And so there are people who are allies who do have those resources. And I'm not talking about podcasters. I think a lot of times we focus on the podcasters. I'm talking about the people who have the networking and have the resources and are able to help those people that don't have the resources. And we do have people like that, that are allies and are socialists and are not capitalists. So we have to stop looking towards the people like the Bill Gates and the Elon Musk. All these people put so much hope and faith in Elon Musk when he took over Twitter just to be disappointed. He's a billionaire. What do people expect? A billionaire from an apartheid family who used slave labor. 
I could not believe so many people thought mm -hmm. that he was going to be their savior. You cannot look mm -hmm. towards those people. You have to look towards the people who are genuinely helping people in those communities and not because they get name recognition for it, but because they really care and they really want to help. And what we learned is when we brought on Watts Community Corps, Watts Community Corps informed us, we didn't know this, they informed us that there were multiple celebrities that are coming there every week helping them feed and take care of poor families and working class families. That includes the Red Hot Chili Peppers, who would never advertise it. These are the people you got to look towards, not the people, the celebrities that go on to like mainstream media and advertise. I help this person. I help that person. Those are not the people that you want to align with. Those are the people looking to get brownie points and looking to get a pat on the back. You have to align with the people who are not making it publicly known. Those are going to be the people that are your greatest allies. But I, I totally understand it is very tough if you're poor or you're working class because most of the time you're spending a lot of your time working and you just don't have time to go out there and organize. But like I said, these successful movements in the past have been, they've been successful because people who had resources came in and helped. And that includes the civil rights movement. We talk about Dr. King a lot. We need to all remember that Dr. King went to Boston University, a private university here in Massachusetts that I used to work at until January. We have to understand even Dr. King had some resources. So this is the thing. Hey, These are the people that we have to align with. Go ahead, Marco. Sebi, you're cracking me up because, like, did you know that the uh, National Ranked Choice Voting Organization Fair Vote is is mostly funded by the basis from Nirvana? I did not know that, but see, that's good that I don't yeah, know that. Exactly. You see what I'm saying? That's why you're cracking me up because it's so true. <laughs> yeah, that Steve Grohl. Oh, no, the it's, Nirvana, it's Chris, like uh, Chris Noble Lessage. Okay. Um, a good example also, it's, you, you have to find like, um, leverage. If you don't have sh strength, then you at least have to have, find some type of leverage that you can use. Mm -hmm. Um, I was, I was saying, I was trying, like, for instance, here's, here's an example. One example was what I was, was when I said the workers found leverage at, after the lockdowns to, to to shift the leverage toward them. Another leverage, I was saying that this whole thing with student debt and all that different type of stuff that the, uh, that, you know, Biden, you know, lied on and there's, you know, there's no student debt relief. Um, I, I was saying that high schoolers should do a massive exodus out of the country and study abroad for free cause American colleges and public universities to fold and go un under and make them cry uncle until they say, okay, okay. All right. All right. You know what I'm saying? So that's, that's using leverage. But then lo and behold, I was reading a CNBC article yesterday where that's beginning to happen, but it's not happening because of student loan debt. It's happening because of Roe v. Wade. So I was reading this thing and it was saying that um, kids are like, hey, I don't want to go to that. I don't want to go to college in that right wing state. 
maybe I'll pick this one over here. And some were saying, well, maybe I'll just leave the country and, and, and study college. So this is, this is what I mean. Like, you never know what's going to pop up. You just have to look for the opportunity. And, and we, we have to look for the opportunity and, and jump on it. Yeah. Good you know point. I, mean? and I would also yeah. add too, like people have been leaving the United States over the past couple of years. Like we have like American, like expats that have moved to like the UK that have moved to like Germany that have moved to Canada because they're just tired of the bullshit. In fact, Nico, I don't know if everyone knows this, but I found out recently Nico house moved to Brazil. What? Oh, yeah, wow. I found that out recently. Yeah, no, we're not texting him, and he don't answer my texts, and I don't feel as bad. What? <laughs> yeah, Nico was just like, "Fuck it." He said, "Look, I realized how to get over some of my problems was to just leave this country," and okay. he just so I mean, same thing. Fiorella, Fiorella moved yeah. to Russia. Fiorella was like, "I'm out." Got, I thought Fiorella got trapped there because of. Uh, everything that happened and they weren't letting people leave no. and all that stuff. No, she, she got that job offer and she was just like, well, fuck it. What else am I going to do here? So she left. Mm-hmm. She was just like, forget this. So I, I think that's another thing that's happening too. And Roger, I a hundred percent support that. I've said this also to like, um, on my show a couple of times, people who are high school students, like if mm-hmm. you financially cannot afford to attend college in the U S Don't take out the student loans and end up with all that debt. If you can go to school abroad for free, go, go to Germany, go to UK, go to these places that have free college. And it's also free for Americans as well, by the way. Some of those schools are better than schools in the U.S. Like, just go, go over there and and do what you got to do. And you can always come back. I wonder what your take is of being am, in Brazil and then being in Russia, like how, how they like it, how they compare it to the States. You know, I'll be curious. I understand those strategies. Um, and I don't want to um, take up too much more time on this topic because I did want to make some comments about the Zelensky speaking before Congress. But I would say to you all that, you know, going to school abroad as a strategy to avoid what's going on in this country is not readily available to the poor. You know, it's just not, and it's an option, but the people who can say, Oh, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to go into all this debt and I'm just going to go to school abroad and go for free. You have to have a certain set of resources to even make that decision. And you, Mm -hmm. you know, and you have to have enough forethought to have done the groundwork, with respect to language because you know going to schools those schools the schools that i'm referring to in those countries the people usually speak english like for example when i lived in germany like most of the people in germany spoke english so i think like i think that's another like misconception that americans have like english is like a universal language so people in other countries are more likely to be bilingual than we are a lot of them and they I, want to learn English like like in school, but in reference to like people who are poor being able to take advantage of that opportunity, a lot of times some of those schools will offer to pay for their airfare and everything. So if they're offering to pay for it to get you there, you should be all set if they're paying for everything. And I think that's the difference. And you can still get a job there. And I know this because a friend of mine has done this. So I think 
That's that's the thing. But, but again, the American high schools do not educate the students about this option because they exactly. want to keep you here. Yeah. And but, know, and it also has the. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. My bad. If I just wanted to segue to the Zelensky topic so that I can move on and let one of the other callers get in. I was just um, and if that's OK. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Oh, oh, I was just stunned um, with the performative aspects of that speech because, you know, first of all, the exchange of the flags was really just to solidify that this really is a proxy war. And they're saying Ukraine mm-hmm. is USA and USA is Ukraine. And he he did his pitch to the capitalists when he said, oh, don't see this aid as um just an expenditure, but see it as an investment. Because, you know, when this war comes to a close by whatever means it comes to, there's going to be tremendous opportunity to rebuild. And I saw him as, you know, giving a nod to the capitalists saying, yeah, if you invest in us at this juncture, when it's time to rebuild, you know, we'll be a, a fertile ground for you to come and exploit. And I just thought that was like, wow. And that's why he's getting so much bipartisan support, because this is really about the United States, you know, surveying the the world for resources. And so this whole thing about, you know, support them, this, that and a third. And, you know, this is about um, democracy and all this. That's crap. This is about the U.S. staking out another territory where they can exploit the people. And let's not forget that Zelensky is in the position he is in because of the U.S. intervention in Ukraine. So he's just their puppet who came to put on a show in front of the gallery. But it programs the American people and it builds that indoctrination because it reinforces the ideology that Russia is the ultimate evil in the world. And, you know, we have to be against Russia and the you know, the vilification of Russia and don't get me wrong, Russia has a lot of things about it that I don't admire. But, you know, these type of events, having Zelensky speak to Congress is meant to build that U.S. support. And for people who are not digging into the issue beyond what comes across the TV or whatever, they're going to be lock, stock and barrel. And that contributes to, you know, them being able to do so much um, debauchery with respect to the funding, because I'm thinking at the same time that you're pledging all this money and resources to Ukraine, your country has a problem with homelessness and everything else. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I thought um, the reporter, I, his name slips me, who Max. was following them after, who was it? Max Blumenthal. Max. Blumenthal, who was posing the the tough questions, the real questions that get to the heart of the issue, they were just, you know, like you say, so quickly trying to vilify him and cast him as something other than just someone who's pushing to get out the truth. But that's mm-hmm. a part of the overriding problem in this country. And it speaks to that lack of accountability that we used, you know, we depended on our journalists for, for so many years, but now it's gone. Well, I will say, I I will say this. I'm going to keep it real with you guys. I never heard of this dude 
until this year. Didn't know who Zelensky was, none of that. Oh, right. <laughs> like, who is this guy? Why is he on Vogue magazine? What the? What is happening here? Like, when's the last time we saw someone who was fighting in a war, a country fighting in a war, when did they get on Time magazine and Vogue magazine and all these different covers? Like, do people not seriously see the propaganda? It is ridiculous. They I think they do collaborate. not. They told this guy, listen, you can come to the Oscars if you want to. For what? Was he in a movie? Why does he need to go to the Oscars? What is happening here? Is he coming to the MTV movie, like music awards next? It's crazy. It's crazy. It's disgusting. And I got to tell you guys, like both of you guys, and I'll pass it to you, Roger. Russia, like, and probably before I was born, ever since I was a kid, Russia has been vilified. Ever since I was a kid, they were like, Cold War, evil Russia, even Rocky Four vilified Russia. Why is it, mm-hmm. and you have to ask your, yourself this question in reference to Hollywood, why is it every time when Hollywood depicts Russia, it's this snowy, cold, Siberia-like land, everybody's like cold and mean, it has no feelings or no soul, like that kind of thing. Why do they always do that? You even see it in Stranger Things. If you watch Stranger Things, they do the same thing. They vilify the Russians and all this stuff. Let me tell you something, okay? As as a black person here, you know who has not colonized Africa? Russia. Yeah. So for all the countries that they tell us we should praise, they said, how dare you? mock the queen how dare you say bad things about the uk how dare you say bad things about france how dare you say bad things about spain fuck that russia never colonized africa the uk Mm -hmm. did spain did france got their hands in it as well but they want us to be angry at the country that never came for us, but they want us to praise the countries that did come from us and stole our resources. Somebody make that make sense to me. It's classic union projection. The, the evil of Russia they try to project on us is the evil of the U.S. Absolutely. But see, they need that national, that international villain to justify the spending because they are creating a historical context in the minds of the people. So that if you have an arch enemy that dates back a century, whenever in order to justify the spending and ability billing of the military budget, all you have to do is somehow link it to Russia. And so. It's like Russia, Russia, Russia. That's why that whole Russiagate thing with Clinton, even though the emails that were released by WikiLeaks clearly pointed the finger toward, you know, Clinton rigging the election, they swirled it around and said it's Russia. And then, like you say, Sabby, your historical thing takes over and it's like, oh, be afraid of Russia, this, that, and a third. But if you don't dig into it, as everyday people and give yourself the wherewithal to question that narrative. They just build more and more consent around it. And it's that major narrative that both Democrats and Republicans 
who make up the capitalist elite, they're all on board. And then they pat each other on the back and say, oh, we passed this bipartisan legislation. Isn't it a wonderful thing? And we're going to provide funding to the Ukraine because they're fighting mean old Russia. And meanwhile, people are just numbed down. And, and you know, the, the very poorest in this society are so disconnected that they um it's not like they're given a second thought and we and we're mm-hmm. out here you know I'm not abject poor but it's like we're struggling and we're busy so busy trying to survive we barely have oh, yeah. the energy you know oh yeah no you 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 you're preaching to the choir we we don't disagree with that i mean let me that tell is you definitely something. let me let me make something very clear russia has never done anything to me okay Never did anything to me. Nothing to me. And it it just, if you ask like the average African American, if you go to them and say, oh, Russia, do the Russia bad, Russia, most black people are going to look at you and be like, what? And then, Savvy, Russia never did anything to Mexico either. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So, So, what, what, what I was going to say, right, is um, so I was using when I was talking about the college thing, I was just given like an example of the legs. Is, OK, I think what what's what you might be looking at, um, Noel, let's say we're looking at a person, right? I'm using an analogy. We're looking at a person and picture that person representing the empire, And we're looking at them from the waist up, from the torso up, but we don't realize that their legs, their feet are disintegrating. Okay. So the thing with the college thing with the kids, that's one example. Another example is it's also the, the military is being depleted of recruits. Okay. So that's going to make it hard for the people. They already really bust ass trying to get more recruits in. So that's that's another way of, of its of it crumbling underneath. An- another way is just like I said before about people uh, workers using their leverage in in the workplace. Uh, there was another example I had, but that is an opportunity for us to use some type of leverage. To try to to try to change it around. I, I don't mean like you by yourself. I mean as a group, as a community, as a people. You know what I mean? To to see where we can take this lever and be like, okay, this person is talking to me, and they don't even realize that their legs are disintegrating underneath them. Oh, oh, now I remember what the other one was. The media, the media, because you were talking about the media before. The media is going under. They only survived for a few years because of Trump, okay? And when Trump was gone, they was trying to bring him back again. And 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 they're crumbling, just like that guy that uh, the guy with the long hair who was talking about how the, you know, that made Don, that embarrassed Don Lemon. Um, that's crumbling. Harlan's media did a thing a couple of days ago where he was kid was saying that the uh, the streaming services are not doing too well you, you understand where i'm coming no. from like you, netflix yeah. about to tank for real and yeah. see i i agree that these um 
the the structures and the strictures are crumbling. But what cautions me is that what you just described was the context for a paranoid elite. When you talk about the institutions in this nation crumbling, they're not going to just crumble and and stand in place and be replaced. They're going to drag this entire system with them because, like I say, they're paranoid, and but they have power. And like Chris Hedges said, you know, when he talked about um, what was going on in Europe when he was a war correspondent, you know, you have societies that are the, on the edge of a collapse, but the people don't see it because they're so distracted with all these little things that, you yeah. know, like I say, trying to survive, that they don't realize that the institutions are decaying from within. And when you talk about the legs decaying, you're talking about the underpinning of this society, and that is going to be the collapse because they're not going to go down, just disappear. They're going to drag this whole system under, trying to maintain control. And that's what we see now. That's what the breakup, I mean, the preemptive breakup of the um, prevention of the railroad strike. They're trying to maintain control because they see it coming. They know it's um, collapsing. And they're trying to do everything, like you say, the military is trying to do recruits, but they don't have a plan B because they're not willing to say this whole experiment with um, capitalism has not worked. It is destroying us. We need to be prepared to use resources to help build and help undergird, you know, the people that we see as the slaves. But they they don't have that gear to shift into because they're so paranoid about their way of life dis disintegrating. And I really believe we're going to end up in a type of chaos and confusion because meanwhile, the things that we talk about, like organizing at the grassroots and mutual aid, those things will not be able to um, be populated quick enough and propagated quick enough to stand in the gap. I agree, no, Noel, but, but but here's the thing: we gotta get, we gotta plant those seeds now, before yep. the collapse. If we plant the seeds before the collapse, then when the collapse comes, they'll be fruiting. So, like now's the time that we need to organize all this stuff. So I yeah. totally agree with you. Yeah, I, I was just, I'm just gonna add this really quick. Like, for those of you listening that have kids, if your kids are older than like eight, just want to add that. You're not going to be able to teach this to like a two-year-old. But those of you that have kids, listen, our kids should already be set up to do this. Our kids should already know what mutual aid is. They should know how it works. And I say this because I know people that they grew up protesting. They grew up knowing about mutual aid. In fact, for some of you that follow the bank sisters, the bank sisters are so passionate about mutual aid and direct action is because that's how they were raised. So like mm. your kids should already know about mutual aid and how to help people in the community. They should already be taught this so that they can pass that on as they get older. But if you have kids and like, they don't know, it's like, no, they, you guys got to understand what's going to happen in 20 years. Those kids who are eight years old today, 20 years from now, they'll be like 28, 29 years old. 
we are already going to be at part of the height of the climate crisis 20 years from now. Exactly. So those kids, those kids need to know now they need to know survival skills. They need to know how to build a fire. They need to know how to build shelter. Most people don't know. And I know this because I was a camp counselor and I, we had to teach people how to do these things. And that's why I'm trying to tell you, most people don't know. And so if you have kids and you're listening to this, you should already be teaching them how to do mutual aid, how to grow their own food, how to build a fire, how to build shelter. These are survival skills. Yes. And I think Americans, I think a lot of us, we just become too comfortable and that's why a lot of people don't know how to do this. But we got to remember, people did this a long time ago. Like, that's how it used to be. The hunters and gatherers, that's how they lived. So, I don't know. Levi, I want to bring you in because I know you you unmuted. Go ahead, Levi. Yeah, I'm here. Hi. Um, much more sober than last time. <laughs> um, <laughs> I had to, uh, it was really uh, interesting. Noelle, um, I have to agree, like, she speaks to the, um, the despair, I, I guess, echoes a lot of um, the Chris Hedges sentiment. I guess it's like a dialectic, like a back, back and forth between these these polarities between the um, the despair, which you can say is very realistic, and then like you can't have hope if you don't act on it. It's the sort of Cornell West thing as well, and uh, and Hedges writers. If you don't, you know, if you're not prepared to act, then you just can't claim hope. You know, optimism's a, a fool's errand. You have to, there's nothing to give us optimism. But if you act, then you can like claim hope. But it's kind of like an act of uh, faith for him, right? For Hedges, when he speaks about it, he says basically you've got to do it because it's the good thing to do, and not expect uh, you know things to work out for you. And it's that's, those are all great things, and not platitudes. that are really insightful and speak to me, resonate with me a lot. But um, I do find myself oscillating back and forth. One thing that um, I wanted to point out worth reading that's depressing but really interesting is by uh, um, Lauren Berlant. She just passed away a year or so ago. She's an um, author that writes about affect, and she wrote this book called Cruel Optimism, and one of the chapters is called Slow Death. And it really reminds me, uh, what Noelle was talking about reminds me of the Slow Death chapter. It's about... Um, what she calls, sorry for the jargon, but like lateral agency, meaning like for poor poor people in an ordinary day who don't have times to like, don't have space in their life to um, achieve real freedom, will, you know, smoke the cigarette. And it's not because they're stu stupid or they'll eat the Twinkie and it's not because they're dumb. It's like a momentary relief from a structure that's like grinding them down slowly toward death, which I can totally relate to, uh, even though I'm, I'm a teacher now, but I, I, like I told you last time, I grew up working class in England, uh, gypsy background and stuff, very poor, um, and, and not in a house until I was like six, we're, um, which was normal for gypsies. Um, but, you know, what might count, I guess, is what, you know, what here might, people might call it white trash here, you know, that horrible way of speaking about people. But um, my point being, uh, you know, there, it's very real that your life could be moving at a certain pace while like history moves tectonically so i was putting in the comments you know like lenin says something it's attributed to lemon lenin that like um for 30 years nothing happened and then three weeks 30 years happens right so that's the idea of some spontaneous shift 
structurally when it all you know and if you've been preparing for that like you're saying like plant the seeds prepare be prepared then that's great uh when when an opening happens but it could be that your life um passes in that interlude it's kind of been that way for me neoliberalism for, uh, being born in 1975 until now it's like becoming more and more acute uh the issues have become so acute and it's like you know my youth has gone I'm I'm now 47 and teaching and I'm seeing I'm like oh wow everyone's like on tender hooks for this thing to come and maybe it will and maybe it won't maybe it just sort of slips into a uh, it takes longer than you think it will it's tectonically shifting and your life passes away in the, in the interim but um you know I know Hedges has spoken to some people and quoted something so he doesn't feel like confident in giving a time frame but he does quote people that gave like uh, 2030 as the time at which the American empire would probably, um, you know, implode kind of in the way that Russia did before, you know, over uh, stretching itself and the hubris at the end of empire. It tries to like, does really foolish things at the end of empire. And he's, he's quoting some of the, the um, academics out there that make that claim. So I just throw a bunch of things quickly, but um, I really res- resonate with Noel. Okay, I'm going to get off so that you can let some of the other callers get in. But I did want to leave out the thing that when you were talking, it reminded me of Chris Hedges spoke about the microaggressions Mm -hmm. that become a part of the late stage before the empire collapses because they're trying to prove to the world that they are still the dominant force that they're that they are, which is why, you know, our military budget keeps getting you know, approved at rates above the request. Yeah. That right. tells you something. But um, I'm, I have really appreciated the opportunity to speak to everybody and have this discourse. And now I'll step aside, Savvy, so that you can let another person get in. Thanks so much. Thank you so much, Noel. Um, let me go ahead and bring in Sue. Sue, if you're still with us, thank you so much for your patience. If you have fallen asleep, I understand, Sue. But um, if you're still here, you have to hit uh, on mute. I'm just going to mute you really quick, uh, Levi. All right, Sue. Sue. Sue might have fallen asleep. Sue was probably like, look. I, was <laughs> I, I just want to say real quick that, um, that when <laughs> Noel said that Zelensky, and I missed that. You know, I, I did. I was not in the mood to hear anything he said when he was in front of Congress. I'll be so, everybody, forgive me for real. Cause I was not trying to have it. All that money, like over forty billion this time around, and then we know that already fifty billion went there to um, Ukraine. So that's like ninety billion in all. We could have solved homelessness for twenty billion. We could did um, what else? We could have did universal child care. I mean, so much things we could have did with that money. But for him to say it was an investment. Come on, come on. You're going to pay back the taxpayer dollars with interest? Is that what we're getting back? Are we going to get back $100 billion, $200 billion? And even Case. then, all those They're lives losing. are not worth it. But go- They're losing, Case. They're not going to win. Oh, dear. That's what I sound like. Oh, sorry, Roger. Case, they're not going to win. Like, that's the thing. It's like... It's- Please. He came there and he said, thank you. We're going towards victory. Mm-hmm. It was a clip that you had. We're going towards victory. And mm-hmm. I was like, if they accomplish, if they're accomplishing victory, then why is he asking for more money? Exactly. 
all this time is is another um Iraq it's another Afghanistan where they see keep saying oh it's right around victory's right around the corner victory and then it's like 10 years later and they're still saying oh yeah victory we can't cut and run 10 years another 10 years later so it's like 20 years later Oh no! The walls are closing in. The walls are closing. The walls are closing in. We got to spend another trillion, like two trillion dollars, pass by after like twenty years, and it's like, where did the money go? That's right. That's what they want. I'm just inviting um, all the rest of you guys to speak because I think I lost um, Sue. I think Sue. Sue, did you fall asleep? I think so. I'm sorry, Sue. All right. Um, What's up, Simway? Uh, not much. Um, I guess I'll have to make this quick since it's well, very late. Um, I came initially Sorry. on. Uh, because I wanted to ask. So I, Maryland, is not ballot initiative, and I was wondering, like, um, what ways to like, I don't know, bring ballot initiatives to the state well no maryland was one of those states on the list uh roger you want to chime in so yes and no maryland is a veto referendum state so the only thing they can do just like new mexico is repeal laws but they don't have the ability to uh pass their own laws and amendments yeah but great to to answer your question um like i said i'm i'm in a non ballot initiative state uh as well and like i said my plan is to try to build up cooperatives in this state um maybe get some some legislation passed in in this in the state legislature to help to allow for a path, you know, a government agency, state government agency, or whatever the case is, and maybe do it at the local level also, to help uh, co-ops uh, grow, start, proliferate, so on and so forth, to eventually box out and replace corporations after forming partnerships, then we become the main fam- financiers of those politicians. And we'd say, yeah, you're going to do this. You know what I mean? And do the same thing what corporations do. They buy off both parties. So a, a worker-led movement, or, you know, cooperatives and all that stuff, they could do the same thing. And just like um, a few people were saying before about, you know, not everybody in a cooperative is going to have, you know, the same political views, but we'll all agree on what's good for workers. Um, and, and you know, that's, I mean, that's, that's really my plan to try to... Uh, to try to, you know, make it, make it happen here. You know, maybe that's something uh, you can do in Maryland, you know, I guess, but um, there's something that we have. um, No, not me personally, but there's something, there's like a group out here in in Long Island. What they do is they see that all the baby boomers are retiring and Mm. baby boomers have their little small business. Right. And their kids don't want it because they told their kids, oh, no, don't do what I do. I want you to go and be a doctor or something like that. So their kids don't want the business and they don't they don't want to uh, have their employees unemployed. So there's like I forgot what the name of the group is out here, but they come in and they help them with the conversion process of saying, hey, we're going to we'll help you transition ownership to your workers. And it's not, you know, be like five workers that work there. So this way they can retire and not have to worry if the owner can retire and not have to worry about, um, you know, leaving like feeling guilty or 
oh, I'm leaving these people who work with me all this time. I'm leaving them like out to dry or whatever the case is. You know what I mean? So that's really the only thing, you know, that's really the only plan that I have to try to get uh, New York State to be a ballot initiative state. All right. Well, I'll look into that because that can definitely help. And you, you, you could, oh, sorry. Well, Go wait on. a minute, Roger. Simway waited for a long time. So, <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah. So, my bad. Sorry about that. All right. Um. Yeah. So, start out small of me finding a way of. Um, so I finally got around to um, basically door knocking. Um, and like starting like in November and got some contacts, reached out with emails. I don't know what the likely chance of them, any of the people I ha got the signatures will respond back, but, um, I'm going to continue doing that. The handing out like door knocking at other low income housing in the hopes that maybe, well, again, contacts and then move on to like, Hey, we can like provide like, um, usually based help like any food or nest toiletries and give a chance of like of course building up the relationship so that's my progress uh, that's awesome though same way i mean like that's something you know what i mean mm -hmm. yeah no that's that's the yeah. most important stuff you're actually you know helping people thanks Definitely. Don't be down. <laughs> yeah. Get that energy up. Everyone's <laughs> well, it's also very late, so. Oh, okay, sorry. It's sorry. Right. Yeah, Roger, she's been waiting for a long time. <laughs> yeah, my bad. Sorry about that. <laughs> it's all right. Um, and, okay, now jumping to the uh, other topic, and, well, I'm going to make, get this quick. Um, I do want to leave when we're on the topic about uh, people going to school and uh, it's uh, in terms of like free I'll admit Germany does have low to low cost um, it's okay for someone who is like very very little in savings in the bank I would if I went now, I would not like. I would not make it because it's mainly because of living expenses. Even if I somehow got lucky getting into the low tuition or free um, school, any of the schools like let's say in Germany, and I looked up the euro, it's not gonna get you far. Especially like it, right now, when it's matching the, the its value is matching the dollar. Yeah, sometimes I wish I didn't come back to this country, man. Like I'll be real. Like sometimes I wish, like, and free Assange, you are next on the mic. Feel free to unmute whenever you're ready. Mm -hmm. But um, sometimes I feel like I stayed in Germany. Man, like I, I, I really do feel like sometimes I wish I did not come back here. I just stayed there in Germany, and I mean, I just, 
I don't know, man. This country is whack. <laughs> it is. I used to know the term whack. <laughs> but you don't want to be in Germany <laughs> now, though, really. <laughs> yeah, like, <clears throat> I would. Con- if I went to Germany, it's... Go on. Sorry, I was just going to say, maybe consider some place in Southeast Asia, because that is looking to be a lot more stable and prosperous than... Oh, God, Europe. yes. Yeah, so um, Vietnam, I flew to China. Yeah, yeah, Thailand I mean... even. I've, yeah, so those places. But am I, I'll try. I mean, they don't have like free tuition like Germany does, but I doesn't mean um, I, I can keep looking, of, of course. And I don't know, maybe I'll try to go more... within like a, yeah. five but years or something. <laughs> I really would have done things differently. Like, if we would have stayed there, I would have been like, yeah, let me go to college here, free tuition, like, that kind of thing. Like, and they speak they they speak English there at the university anyway. Like, they speak both. So it's like, and I'm telling you guys, because, like, when I was in uh, elementary school, we went to a German elementary school, and they were learning English and German at the same time. <laughs> it's only in the U.S. where most of the people are not bilingual. If you go to other countries, you'll see it's different. Even when I went to Montreal, I was told they were like, yeah, here we have to learn French and English. It's the U.S. where we're, we have that that difference. And I just feel like, yeah, man, like if, if my dad would have been like, we're just going to stay right here in Germany, I would have been like based. Like it was all straight. Absolutely. Like, Can I give a tech a tech factoid? This this will be for Case and whoever and and Marco and you know whoever knows. Uh, did you know? Last time I checked, okay, so internet speeds, okay. So some places in Europe and China, theirs is. I, I don't know if you you probably won't know what I'm talking about, Sappy. But their thing, their their streaming speed, their download speed is 178 terabits per second. Okay, we're, we're still fucking around with gigabits over here now japan when i looked at that theirs is 319 terabits per second okay so in case anybody doesn't know terra means trillion and giga means billion and mega means million okay we're i'm seeing commercials for files talking about five ten gigabits per second meanwhile the fastest internet in the country which is municipalized in chattanooga theirs is uh 10 gigabits per second but yet these other countries are messing around with triple digit terabits per second. And the fastest that I've seen is Japan at 319. So yeah, everyone throw that little uh, factoid in there. By the way, it says uh, one euro is equal to a dollar and six cents. Just want to throw that in there too. Yeah, that makes sense yep. too. Like even when it comes to technology, like we're not as, we're not as advanced as we think we are. And I would add that too. And I want to bring in um, Free Assange because I know you've been waiting for a long time. I want to bring you in next, but I want to add that like one of the things I noticed like working at like places like MIT is that when it comes to math and science in this country, we are far behind. We are not on the same level as like China or Korea or Germany. Like our students don't have the scores. They don't have the grades when it comes to advanced math and science. And this is the reason why 
a lot of times, like this is a whole nother discussion, but this is the reason why a lot of times when you look at these schools like MIT and Caltech and um, even uh, UC Berkeley, when you look at those competitive math and science programs, this is why a lot of times it's not uncommon for them to have a larger international student population because the American high schools in this country are not teaching advanced math and science the way that the European countries are teaching it and the Asian countries are teaching. We are not teaching it to that degree. Even when I was in high school, calculus was an option. I admitted students that came from countries where calculus was a requirement. And I think that is a big difference. This is why we are not on the cutting edge when it comes to math and science and innovation in the world. We're not, we're really not. And I think people need to understand that. Yes, we're one of the wealthiest countries in the world. When it comes to math, science, and it comes to innovation, we are not there. And I that mean, goes back to the school system. They, as you say, they're trying with pushing STEM on the students, but as long as there is too many schools that are just underfunded, they're never going to reach that goal. Yeah, or but even, even like change the whole, up their teaching system. Even the whole pushing STEM thing, because they, they took us through all that whole thing too. Even with pushing STEM, there's a difference between pushing STEM and teaching it in a way that the students actually enjoy it and want to learn more advanced math and science skills. Oh, ain't and that I, true? Yeah, there's a big difference. Like you have to have a passion for these things. Like you have to love math. If you want to go into advanced math, you have to actually like math. You have to actually like science. And what I've noticed is that in some of the public schools in this country, they're not teaching it in a way that makes it enjoyable. They're teaching it like straight from a textbook or the teacher is talking to a chalkboard or a blackboard. And the students aren't really engaged. They're not actually using their hands uh, in, in terms of like experiments and things like that. And I think I was taught it differently. And that, that's something I want people to understand. In Germany, when they taught you these things, like in my science class, like my, my science teacher was German. My science teacher, Dr. Hunt, he taught you science through an experimental way. You did not just learn through your textbook. You learned through your hands. So when he would talk about like molecules and he would talk about like atoms and things like that, we were actually doing those things in the class. There's a big difference from that and actually just learning from a textbook. And what I noticed about American education, a lot of times it's, here's your textbook, study this, read these chapters, take this test. And these students go on to college and they think they can apply those same skills to the collegiate education system. And they, they struggle their freshman year because you have to go beyond that when you get into college. And then they don't go further. We are less likely to produce students in this country that will go on and take uh, graduate courses and go on to PhD uh, degrees. Most of those students come from abroad. And this is something a lot of people don't know if you don't work in higher ed. And I worked in higher ed, and I'm telling you, most of the PhD candidate students are not U.S. students. They are international students because we have not we have not really instilled those types of values when it comes to math and science in students 
to students in the United States, starting from high school, we have not instilled it in them. So th there's no push. There's no, unless your your parents were already scientists or they were already elite academics, there's no push for that here the way it is in those other countries. And I think that's something important for people to understand. Uh, Free Assange, please unmute. I'll go ahead because I want to make sure I bring you in. Sorry. Thanks. Thanks for speaking Thank with me. Thank you for uh, having this space. I really appreciate these spaces. I always learn a lot. And I can speak a lot about how STEM is just, you know, it's in the dumps in this country. It's, we, like, we would use, we used to actually did proof every time they would introduce a new concept. Like every time they would teach you a new law, they would show you the experiment and you would do the experiment. You know, and if it was too dangerous and the teacher would do it in front of you. So you could actually know why these things are instead of worshiping like gospel, like instead of just, Oh, just believe the science, you know, you could actually see it and you could see the error. You could see, well, okay, this is what they've worked on before. And maybe you can even integrate in the science and finish it here. Cause then, that's another thing about it. It's never finished. You know, it's still, there's always another factor to it that they don't, you know, and then we're not really geared to think that way. We're geared to think, you know, one plus one equals two or, you know, press the button and, and then the, the burger comes out. It's, you know, and STEM is, is dominated by international students, you know, and it's, and at first, you know, you don't really see there's any problem with it, but then you're like, wow, like everyone here doesn't speak English in the class. And then it's like, it's harder to build study groups in the class when you have different, you know, nationalities. And then I was struggling to build solidarity. And then you also, you know, people's egos get in the mix. And then now I start to see why intellectuals and academics do have a lot of this, you know, individualistic or um, even malicious mindset is because how we're brought up through the, the, the schooling system. And then right now in the, in the UC system there's the cola the cost of living adjustment strike going on right now so they're forcing the PhD the phd students to live on twenty two thousand dollars a year now they're trying to raise it uh higher but so they want you living on that low salary so that when you get your job you're, you're appreciative of it and then we're all individualized and, and isolated so i thought that was a great point you got you brought up about the education system and uh so uh I mean, uh, I really think we need another uh, Camp Data. I don't know, like I don't, I don't know Yay! what the, the Bank Sisters. <laughs> I think we need another one. I miss. I had a really fun time, you know. And I know they're kind of hard to set up, but we did Skillshares. I'm telling y'all, for people who couldn't make it, it was a great thing. I, I think we could do them anywhere. Just, just meeting up and talking to people with light minds and learning things, and you know, it, it gave me a lot of hope. So I just think we got we should do a lot more of that. Um, yes, yes. I should have that vlog. Oh my god, I'm so behind. I should have that vlog posted this weekend, you guys, so you guys can see what we did at Camp Dada because like that was such a great. It was such a great experience because we learned so much from each other, and I think, in reference to like Skillshare, like we learned a lot, and like it was like a, a, an event for a lot of activists to just come together and get together um in new york and we just we learned so much and that's what i'm saying like guys we need to be meeting in person especially those of you if you're on the east coast with me what's up because like i'll go to dc for these events i've come to new york for events like i i have no problem i get in my car and i go <laughs> but we need to be meeting in person and what i learned at camp data 
once I got to meet with a lot of people in person and some of you I had known like only on Twitter, it was amazing what we can put our minds to when we get together in person. But uh, Karthik, I want to bring you in as well. You just have to um, unmute. Hey, Sabi, what's up? Um, so I thought it was very funny when you talked about Germans, scientists doing experiments, or trying to be Germans experiments. But anyway, um, so I'm someone that's worked in the education system. A lot the, the, that's where most of my uh, work uh, history is, and I, and I know you have too. And I'm, I'm someone that likes math a lot. I have a degree in econ, so I want to do your perspective on what what do you think it'll take for like the education system to change and not just make it just like mindless learning where like people aren't passionate about math or you know similar subjects well number one they have to get rid of these rules that like you have to teach the curriculum based on the standardized test i know i can't speak for all states but in 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 massachusetts it is that way you have a certain curriculum that you have to teach and it's supposed to help you pass these standardized tests. Standardized tests are bullshit. Uh, this has been talked about multiple times. Malcolm Gladwell has talked about standardized tests. Standardized tests are not suited for working class people. They're not sorted for poor people, like kids that come from these families. They're not even sorted for women. They're not even like uh, good for African-Americans either. Like standardized tests have been proven and there's data and research on this. They've been proven to be heavily uh, racist and sexist. So it's the way that they ask the questions is the questions that are asked. Most of the time, these are Eurocentric questions. And so if you are not coming from that type of background, you may have a difficult time, right? So there's that, that has to change. The other thing that has to change is you have to stop funding public school systems through property taxes. Yeah. As long as you continue yeah. to do that, kids that live in like working class and poor neighborhoods, they are always going mm -hmm. to be at a disadvantage because those schools are under-resourced and they're underfunded. And that's not fair to them. It's like telling these kids, yeah, you get a shitty education system because you're poor. They're being penalized because they're poor. They're being penalized because they're working class. And that is not right and it's not fair. And that should have never been a rule in the United States. But that was also done on purpose. You have to go all the way back to white flight. You have to go back to when white families left the cities and moved to the suburbs. And black families were kept out of those suburban communities, even if they had the income to live there. That's where that comes Amazing. from. So when white families left the cities, they took their wealth and income with them into the suburban communities. So the cities were now left with the black families and the Latino families, and they didn't have the wealth and income. They didn't have ownership. They were renting. And so the property taxes in those urban areas were going to be, you know, it was going to be different because they didn't own anything. So the schools were all of a sudden they were under-resourced. In fact, someone who talks about this, who we may not be a fan of, is Michelle Obama. Michelle Obama talked about this in her book, Becoming. She talked about how the school system changed in Chicago when white flight happened, how all of a sudden the schools became under-resourced. And that's a big thing. We need to, we need to talk about these things as well, is that the way you get around that, you let the federal government fund these schools. And for people who say we can't have the federal government do that, it would be disaster. 
I want to let you know they already do it with those of us from military families. When I went to school, I went to Dodge schools, Department of Defense schools. The military funds those schools. So we didn't have to pay for anything. When I was in band, I didn't have to pay for my instrument. When I was on the basketball team, I didn't have to pay for my uniform. That's the big difference. So I think people have to understand you shouldn't have to be a part of the military industrial complex to get a decent education in this country. You shouldn't have to be wealthy to get a decent education in this country. You should get a decent education, period, regardless if you're poor or if you're working class or if your family is in the military. That's that's something that really would have to change. Yeah, because that's um, and if and a, a, a public bank can help with um, whether it's local or state. So if the federal government's not going to do it, then the state has to do it. And the best way to do that, have a charter public bank, state and local level. So this way, like I said, one of the main things is it creates a surplus in your economy without having to raise tax, existing taxes, or create new taxes. You know, North Dakota is a very low, low uh, tax state. So, you know, there's other, there's other ways to, you know, I believe we can do it. But I'll tell you another thing really quick about North Dakota, because I from high school, went to work in North Dakota a couple years. I was like, Justin, how the hell did you end up in North Dakota? And he said, because they had jobs up here that were paying way more than I was making in North Carolina. And he said that in North Dakota, he said, I'm not kidding, Sabrina. They have more jobs here than they have people. So he stayed there for a couple of years, made his money, and then he moved back to North Carolina and bought a house. It is what it is. One of the things we also, have to be mindful of as well is when you think about education, you have to think about the social purpose of education. And generally speaking, it is to supply the workforce. But if if America has deindustrialized and sent its industrial base, you know, abroad, and now we're basically a finance-based economy. You don't need a surplus of highly educated people. And so if you're importing intellect from India, from China, and they're giving them those visas, capital only is concerned about whether it has the talent to do what it does. They don't, they don't really have a allegiance to that intellect coming from America. And that has been a whole a whole big part of the problem that we have in this country. We have not demanded that the capitalists have any type of patriotism. Oh, they can send the entire process to Mexico because it's cheaper. They can import intellect from India because it's cheaper. But no one ever tracks what that does to the chapter, line, and verse of your society. And so we have a lack of investiture in mm-hmm. education because they're not concerned about American kids, especially those who come from the oppressed classes becoming, you know, these in- intellectual people who could carry the nation. They, and that's, that's one of the backdrops and um, negative side effects of a capitalist economy. It just does not care what happens to the people. And we see that 
not only in education. I mean, hello, we don't have universal health care. So we can look across our society and see. And that's why I say capitalism kills, because it incentivizes all the wrong behaviors. And when you look at what what is necessary to build the society, we're anemic on every level. And it all goes back to the overriding ideology of capitalism. And, you know, like Sabi says, if you rely on property taxes to fund your education, then, of course, where the dollars are is where it's going to be the best education. And then you leave your urban cores vulnerable. And then when you try to rebuild the urban core, you're giving all type of breaks to corporations to lure them back in. And that comes at the expense of the educational institutions. So it stands to reason that when you look at the biggest um, state boards of education that govern these urban cores, it's always a problem because the, the economic base is just generally not there. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Um, that, and, and that's the problem is that even if you did have universal health care, like we have health care and our entire political system is constantly trying to destroy it even though every canadian is aware of this as a political issue and no one wants it taken apart like literally no one every party basically finds a way to chip at the edges no matter what because they don't really and, and and it's just gotten more blatant since then but that that's that's what late stage capitalism does it hollows everything out i just want to um yes and uh, another thing that you guys were talking about it would be really interesting if we had a school system that, like I used to study genetics and, um, you know, to, to follow up the things that were interesting, you know, you would need some kind of research money, right? And the first thing they would say, if you ever came up with something, would be like, that's an interesting idea. Can you find a way for someone who is already rich to become more rich from selling it? Because then we can get you some research money for it. And it would be really neat if maybe we had a public bank system or if we had ways to, you know, de-corporatize the education system. So it wasn't about building new products or the military industrial complex or that kind of thing. Let me tell you something. I got a bone to pick with Justin Trudeau. I got oh, a yeah. bone to pick with Justin because what he did to those truckers was just wrong. And I, like I said before, whether you agree with what they were protesting over or not in reference to the mandates, you should have still been on side with the, the side with the workers. And even that was politically divided in this country. People were like, oh, you're right wing if you support the truckers. Like, the, what is happening here? Oh. They're the workers. They have a right to protest. So for Justin Trudeau to come in and say, I'm going to seize your assets or whatever. You know, I used to think this dude was cute. Like back in the day, when people, people were like, oh my did. God, look at Canada's prime minister. And I was like, damn. Yeah, that, that was his primary political oh. attribute, being really cute. That's that's what he did. He was like Obama, was like, but nobody, whiter. No, nobody. None of our presidents looked like that. I was like, damn. Then I started to go into Justin Trudeau's history about him doing blackface and Justin Trudeau being straight up corporate and like wanting to like, and then the whole thing with the truckers happened. I was like, oh, hells no. Justin is just a cute face. 
Yeah. Justin, mm-hmm. not really for the people either. Yeah. Justin's kind of interesting because he kind of did um, a short form Obama on us. Like he had a, he had a, a very uh, progressive campaign where he kind of outflanked even our left, our left wing parties, promised all kinds of stuff, did about 25% of it. Like he did legalize pot, right? We give him credit for that. But um, interestingly, you know, when the trucker protest was going on, like it, it was happening, it was, there was, it was present all across the country. Everyone knew about it, but nothing was really happening. Like our, our government wasn't really responding because I think they correctly sensed that they didn't, we didn't want them to do anything. And then there was a call from Biden to Trudeau. And then the next day, the Emergencies Act was put into, if I remember the timeline correctly. If not, it was the next day. It doesn't matter. Point is, he didn't make that decision. Biden did. Because um, we're not really in charge of our country. So, I mean, we can we can complain about what, what Trudeau does or says. But it doesn't really matter. He reminds me a lot of Richie Sunak. He just seems to be kind of reading a script. Like if you compare the things that Richie Sunak said compared to the things that Liz Truss said compared to the things that Boris Johnson said, they're like the same words um, because the political situation hasn't changed, you know, you know, really in terms of what they want Britons to be doing, right? They want to keep supporting Ukraine, continue destroying their own economy and just basically shut up. And that's, our job as well so so that's what we're doing um but he doesn't represent us in any way like any promises that he that we once thought he was going to keep no one thinks that anymore it is kind of interesting that like he was successful at dividing the country along these partisan lines like i used to i i um uh, there's a there's a communist group uh, or a communist socialist uh, university in Manitoba that does a lot of interesting theory, but even listening in on on their discussions at the time, like it it worked. People were really radicalized against the other group. Even the people that were like very touchy feely communist socialist people had were really had bought into the idea that all these people were basically Nazis. And I went to uh, one of the trucker rallies here in Edmonton. I didn't, didn't see any any sign of that. I saw some trucks. I, you know, it just wasn't yeah. true. It was just a bunch of crap. I asked uh, Max Blumenthal about that because he was there. And I was like, Max, what's the deal? And he told me, he was like, it might have been like one or two trucks way down the line that had like those flags but it wasn't representative of the entire group. And I'm like, oh, you don't say. But mainstream media smeared it. Yeah, no. You know why? Because it was about the mandates. Yeah, no, it it definitely wasn't representative. I mean, there's a whole lot of live streams online and these do come from a lot of right-wing sources because frankly, most of the energy behind the protest was right-wing. But I blame our like partisan culture on that, right? Because it was signaled to people that this was a right-wing thing and people were like, oh, I can't touch that. That's a right-wing thing. And that basically worked. Um, you know, we, we were shamed into not going along with what could have been a transformative political moment, right? Like there, mm-hmm. we had figured out a way actually to like lock down the cities in a non-violent way. But you notice that like when they tried to repeat that in Washington, um, you know, the gray zone covered this, they just kept the trucks completely out, out of the city because that worked. 
that could have been our general strike. Where people say could that we never had an opportunity. No, we no, people we did. say we, we never did. had an opportunity to have one. I'm like, yes, we did. Yeah. Yeah. No, we absolutely did. We absolutely did, and we missed it. Mm-hmm. But I actually think we have really- another opportunity here. Like, uh, were you guys watching Jimmy Dore where he was talking to the People's Party and Libertarian group about like organizing for like uh, peace rallies on February 19th? So I haven't seen that episode, but someone did send me the link for that event. Okay. It's just, it seems to me like, you know, with like the whole, like the CIA killed Kennedy and they're like in everything watching you all the time. There's a lot of people on left and right and in general that are pissed off, right? You guys would have to tell me what, like, this is what I'm curious about is what do you guys think about this? Is there enough energy in America to like get together for a mass rally, the thing that they seem to be trying to organize. It seems like maybe now there possibly is enough, like there's enough discontent, but you guys would know and I wouldn't. Here's the problem you're gonna run into here. I'm just gonna be honest with you, with people who watch left independent media. If this is in any way, and other people feel free to uh, chime in here. If this is in any way associated with Nick Brana, you're going to lose people. Yeah. I'm just being honest. Considering everything that has transpired with Nick Brana, it's not even about the People's Party. It's Nick Brana. And the accusations that have been brought against him and everything else. And I think that's the problem you're going to run into. And... I, like, I'll be honest, like, I was at the Assange rally in D.C. Halfway through it, I realized Nick Brana was there, too, and I was like, fuck. Like, like literally, like, I actually said, is Eric still on, yeah, Eric's still on this call. I actually said to Eric, I was like, is that Nick Brana? And Eric was like, yeah, but I was like, fuck. That is literally what I said. Because there's just been too much... And it's not even just the People's Party. It's It's been his leadership. But there's been too many things that have come out and accusations that have been made. And I've interviewed him and his accuser. I've interviewed both of them. And I'm just going to say, if it's associated with Nick Brana, that's going to cause a low turnout. I'm just being honest with you. Uh, I would have to agree. He is a very toxic personality type. And when I say that, I I do mean personality because as Sabi indicates, it is him and his leadership style and all of the stuff that came out um, when they were trying to organize the People's Party was very um, diminishing. And I don't think people will trust and follow. And when you start off a a, a new party or a movement and there's all this fracturing at the very beginning, it translates and it becomes the reputation that precedes you. And so but that takes us back to an earlier topic about how to tap into the power that resides in the people. How do we organize the people so that these type of things can take place in a coordinated way and, um, you know, reach the right people? Right. I I think that, uh, again, it just, look, nothing against people who are still involved with the People's Party. For me, again, it's not the party. It's Nick Brana. 
And, and, and that is an area where me and some other people who are allies, we disagree on that. And that's, that's fine. Just based on the evidence that I have seen, people, I can't rock with it. Like that guy that said, I don't rock with the police. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, if I saw him, oh, I would have loved to. I would have loved to have stepped to him. I mean, not not on no fighting shit or anything like that. Okay, okay. Um, he had he had um liked something that I said, and then followed me. Then I followed him back, and I pressed him on something. This this was before um, Zena. This is this is before all of that. Right, I showed him the Green Party platform for reparations, and I said, "Where's yours at?" And then he 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 then he uh, tweeted me. He said, uh, "This country was built on slave labor that, frankly, continues up to this day with prison labor. I personally believe that reparations are just and necessary. The party's decision will be made by the members. They will vote on the platform." At the founding convention, April, uh, April Fool's Day, twenty twenty. I just read what he said. Um, I'll read it again. This country was built on slave labor that, frankly, continues up to this day with prison labor. I personally believe that reparations are just and necessary. The party's decisions, the, the party's decision, will be made by the members. They will vote on the platform at the founding convention. April Fool's Day, 2021. So then I replied, okay, nice to know. When will the founding convention take place? Also, how many members are there? And what, and you know, I started asking them all these questions. I never got a response back. <laughs> so me, the type of person I am, I would have stepped to him and showed him the DM and be like, yo, remember this shit you told me? This is April Fool's Day, what happened? Because I understand that, you know, that whole thing, that whole debacle I went down with Renee Johnston and um, and, and all the black people leaving before all of that. Now, black people leaving was like the canary in the coal mine. OK, and they was just like, well, what are we here for? That it was because of Nick where I came to the conclusion where I said, fuck it, no more parties. <laughs> That's where I got that from. <laughs> Pretty much. Not to mention what happened with Dario in the Green Party and how Howie Hawkins screwed him over. Oh, you know don't, you mean? That's, that's oh don't you start Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's how I ended up coming to the conclusion where I said, you know what, screw it. We don't need parties. We'll just be a bunch of independent people that just run independent candidates and pass a constitutional amendment someday that, that makes the existence of parties unconstitutional. I was yeah. done with and, parties after that. Yeah. And this is not even like I said, <laughs> like oh Roger, can you mute for just a second? Okay. This is not even like like I said, it's not even about people who are still associated with the party. There's just been multiple evidence, things that I have seen, documentation that for me I can't rock with Duke. And it just is what it is based on everything that I have seen. I can't do it. And that's going to be a problem. I'm just going to be honest with you guys. 
if he is a part of this, that is going to be a problem. That may discourage turnout because it's not even just about what the volunteers have said. It's not even just about the sexual assault allegations that have been, you know, issued against him. It's also about the fact that this party has been around for five years. And one of the things that they were supposed to do is to run candidates. They have not even run candidates on the local level. That's what I'm saying. Like, I wasn't even expecting them to do it on the national level right away. But they haven't even run candidates on the local level. And then they made this announcement not too long ago. And I think some of you guys remember this. They made this announcement saying that Jimmy Dore running for president through the People's Party. They made that announcement. That's why when I interviewed Jimmy, which that interview had already been scheduled, when I interviewed him, that's why I asked him that question because that had came out that same day. And so it just, I don't know, man. Fool me once, fool me twice. It's just, to me, it doesn't add up. But I think Roger raises a very critical issue here because when when you think about um, organizing at the grassroots levels and being prepared to mobilize, one of the big issues in America in terms of the grassroots is trying to work out that alliance and alignment between the American descendants of slaves, and I don't mean as any organized group per se, and the issue of reparations with poor and working class white people, because that is the major polarity that prevents us on the grassroots levels a lot of time from finding that common ground that we could just really organize in a big way. It's because the issue of reparations will surface and what this country owes to the descendants of slaves and poor white and working class people sometimes are just not there. And so you're looking at a situation where those of us who have descended from slavery have to, you know, just swallow it and go along with whatever populist things that working class white America is dealing with, or we just go away because we understand that there is still this um, strain of racism that runs through everything and we can't get past it. But I really believe if someone could figure out the combination to get poor and working class white America to really come to terms about what slavery represented and that it still needs addressed, I think if we could get past that major polarity, we could really be well on our way to um really organizing and building a third party because the issue is definitely there um, and it would captivate, you know, many a people. Um, you know, I just think it's one of those issues that really needs to be addressed. Well, I'll just go ahead and tell you, I think that was something that Marianne Williamson was actually pretty good at um, because I interviewed her about reparations and she said that when she delivered that message to working class white people, it was received differently. And so sometimes it may mean that that message may have to come from people who are not black, but she explained the history and all that kind of stuff. And like she said that like 
when she would explain it, then they would understand it. But when black people would explain it, they were very defensive. This was coming from Marianne. In fact, you guys can go find that video on my YouTube channel. It's almost two years ago. And that said a lot to me. And I think that there is a movement, you know, reparations is more popular now, right? Like there is a movement, you have the foundational black Americans movement, you have the Ados movement, like they're like, look, if the candidates are not running on a reparations platform, we will not support them. They are trying to get candidates in that will run on a reparations platform. Like that's where someone like Marcel Dixon comes in, who was running against uh, Jim Clyburn. Now, I don't agree with him on uh, some of the issues, but when it comes to the reparations issue, I do agree with him on that. And I think that these are some of the things that, that need to be talked about. And I said this back when Bernie ran in 2020, I said it was a mistake for Bernie Sanders to not have a reparations plan. And this was just me hearing things that were coming from people in the black community. And so even though he had people like Brianna Joy Gray and Nina Turner, and even Nina Turner tried to tell him about the reparations that I talked to Cornell West and I asked Cornell West about that. And like, why didn't he? And Cornell West told me he had talked to Bernie Sanders about that too. And he said, Bernie Sanders just didn't believe in that. But what I found when I did my research was that Bernie Sanders did believe in it for his people though, because legislation had come through Congress multiple times for Jewish people and Bernie Sanders supported it. Bernie Sanders only didn't support it when it was for African-Americans getting reparations because see in Bernie Sanders mind, he really believed that if you just fix the economic issues, the racial issues will go away. And that's not true. If that were true, you wouldn't still have people like Stephen A. Smith being pulled over by the police and a police officer grabbing his gun. You see what I'm saying? You, you wouldn't still have black celebrities being pulled over by the police and still being afraid. So it doesn't matter if you have a lot of money if you're black, you're still black. So Stephen A. Smith was still pulled over because he was black. And that's what I want people to really understand. So the thing is, is this. People like Bernie Sanders, he didn't get that. And even when someone like Cornel West tried to explain it to him and Nina Turner tried to explain it to him, that was very clear to me that at that point, he didn't want to get that. And, and you listen to you listen to someone like Teslin uh, uh, Figaro. Teslin Figaro has explained this multiple times on interviews on the Breakfast Club, on Rising. Multiple times she explained her experience working in the Bernie Sanders campaign in twenty in twenty sixteen. They had the same issue, so that's a problem. And see, the reality is. I don't think it's that Bernie Sanders does not get it, but Bernie Sanders understands that the connectivity between white supremacy 
as an organizing theme in this nation and what that means to the people that he was speaking to in terms of working class America, he was not going to champion that and challenge them to deal with that reality. I think Bernie Sanders, he has to understand you know, because he was so able to speak to the people so effectively on those populist issues. But when it comes to rep reparations, all of a sudden he doesn't get it. He doesn't agree. But as you say, he sees the value of reparations for his people. That's right. So that's, ju that's just a part of being disingenuous. But when you look at the entirety of American politics, both on the left and right, there is always a subtle play to white supremacy. And they try and cater to the things that, you know, and the Republicans, of course, can do it in a more unabashed fashion because they lean wholly onto that in their base. The Democrats, on the other hand, has a more diverse constituency, so they cannot do it as, you know, outright and overt. But everybody, it's like this country is aware that in the working classes, there is a polarity around race and they do whatever they can to preserve it. And that's what I believe is really why Bernie Sanders wouldn't go there, because he didn't want to have to risk trying to build that understanding with working class white America. But he clearly understands it because he is in support of reparations for the Jewish descendants of the German Holocaust, which and that says something, because we're talking about when we talk about slavery, we're talking about a crime against humanity that occurred on American soil. But when we talk about reparations for the Holocaust, we're talking about a crime against humanity that took place in Germany. So for you to understand and support reparations for the descendants of the German Holocaust, of which Bernie Sanders is one of those descendants, you know, but you turn around and for the crime against humanity that happened on American soil, oh, you just don't see it. You're catering to white supremacy. And I know, I believe in my heart that he knows what he's doing. He's too intelligent not to know. Let me, I'm going to put the link to that video in the chat. Um, in case I just invited you to speak, I'll let you chime in here. I'm going to put the link to that video in the chat. So for if people want to just watch that, that one news segment where I did that case study of Bernie Sanders, where he was talking about this stuff, I'm going to put that in the chat. Go ahead, Case. I, you know, we was talking about Nick Bronner earlier and I, I, that's why I really truly believe that. Uh, it's very important to try to set up a system where we have a horizontal uh, structure, meaning that the power, uh, the hierarchy is, is and the power doesn't lie at the top. And you don't have this one figurehead that an organization can rise and fall with that one figurehead. You know, we, we have to hopefully come together and, you know, have all the different organizations. We have RBN, you had. Um, Mikasa Sukasa and all these other different channels who hopefully can we can come together and we can collaborate that's that's one way I'm also structuring the mutual aid political party that is it's a whole bunch of teams of different organizations who 
the one thing that they have in common is that they're all doing mutual aid. And then at the same time, you're organizing your districts. So um, that's definitely, I'm looking at all the things that's happened in the past. I'm looking at those things uh, with the movement for people's parties, the leadership structure, the justice Democrats is trying to work within the democratic system. It's not working. Got to do something other than trying to take over the democratic system. Uh, you have our revolution where they're now pragmatic, pragmatic progressives, whatever that progressives. is. Uh, so, you know, we're looking at all those past structures and trying to learn the lessons from them and build new structures. And even if we make future mistakes, we learn from them and we keep moving. We keep trying. That's right. I put Lord. that link in the chat, you guys. It's called Bernie Played Us All. I put the link to that that clip in the chat so you guys can see that. And you can see him here saying these statements that he didn't agree with reparations for African-Americans. But then you'll also see legislation where he agreed with it for, for his people. Mm. That video oh. has 12,000 views. So that's that. Go ahead, Roger. Um, the um, do you know what the weirdest thing was going off of what Noel was saying? Now I don't I don't know if anybody else seen this or anybody else experienced this, but what I've seen and what I've experienced, whether it was with customers or or like my my friend who used to drive a taxi in the suburbs, he'd experienced also. From what I was seeing, MAGA really wanted. Okay, I know it sounds crazy, but I'm just going. I'm just going by what I seen or whatever the case is. But MAGA voters really wanted Trump to do something for Black people, because all they kept. I mean, I'm not just going by what I seen, but what some friends of mine have been told was saying. Oh yeah, Trump. Trump's. You're gonna be happy for Trump. Trump's gonna do. A whole bunch of stuff for black people it you know what i mean so it also sounds kind of kind of partisan also like these these people would probably never voted democrat anyway but it seems that if it's one of their people want to do something for black people especially trump they were okay with it you know and and i'm like damn i wonder what would happen if trump said we're going to get reparations for black people for for um uh lineage-based reparations you know, because it was just all I kept hearing, you know, I was just like, Trump's not really doing anything for black people. But he's like, no, no, Trump's Trump's going to do all this stuff for black people. And he, he look, look what he did, you, you know, and I don't know if anybody else witnessed that or seen that or whatever the case is. But I, I do remember hearing that, like they really wanted their guy to do something for black people. So yeah. I, I did hear some of that. But let me say. That was the for me, I received that as the bait and switch. They want to build solidarity around their guy who has said, make America great again. And we know as the descendants of slaves, <laughs> there is not a period you could go back to in this country where things were yeah. better for us. So that yeah. was an invitation to disaster, if you ask me. And it was very disingenuous. I think these people yeah. knew that Trump had no good intentions for black people. 
Because if he did, he would have said so. Trump, when Trump said on the campaign trail, you got to lose. I see you. I see you, um, the forgotten man. He was talking to white men yes. of the working class ilk. And when he said that, he knew that would alienate black people, but he didn't try and correct it. He didn't say, I want to make America great again by taking it forward and making sure we do right by the underclass, including our black sisters and brothers. And, the, you know, Marianne Williamson spoke wonderfully to the concept of reparations, but Trump didn't do that. And those white people hear it. So here we go again. It's like, oh, Trump is going to do something for us to to pretend and and fall for it and then help vote him in. And then when he unleashes it and you know what the prime example is, he did the exact same thing to the LGBTQ community. When he was running, he had the LGBTQ flag and this and that. And some of the people I know are LGBT and and when he got in office, he was a demon for the LGBTQ community. So that, mm -hmm. you know, you, we always have to be on the lookout for integrity because people, yeah. especially on the national level, will say and do anything to try and get mm -hmm. you to get the vote. But once they're in there, they're true color show. And if Trump and like the old folks say, if you got that old time religion, then you ought to show some signs. And if that's what he was about, he would have made it clear in ways that were clear, not only to us, but to everybody else. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I never like believed them or whatever. I, I was just talking about his his bag of voters who I was just like, yeah, he's, he's not going to do all that. You know, like, no, he's going to do stuff for the for the black man and blah, 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 and so on and so forth. And, they knew that, too. Know, they just, were just trying to see how big a fool they could make of you. Yeah, yeah. Man, most likely. <laughs> I was like, no, those, are all, those are all good points. Um, It's 2.32 a.m., you guys. <laughs> I think we should probably head out. Um. Good night, everybody, or good morning. Time good, good morning. Goes. I wanted to make uh, one request to, to Savvy. I, I was wondering, uh, next time when you speak with uh, CJ, if you could ask him about uh, Central California, because I'd like to work with him. I know he's in Southern California. Mm -hmm. I'd like to see if we can. I know, you know, local, but, you know, it's one state. Hopefully we can work together. I'm, I'm, working, to, I'm working on trying to build something. Bi bi bi. Can you email me because um yeah yeah oh. thanks. <laughs>